you hit the Klingons because they insulted the Enterprise, not because they... Well, sir, this was a matter of pride. Bridge to all decks. We are up to our necks, literally in tribbles on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And that purring sound you might hear in the background is that my office is filled with tribbles, too. And it's very soothing, but it's starting to get in the way. Well, not only is it exciting for us to dive into what is, without question, the most popular and the most beloved episode of Star Trek. I mean, all of Star Trek over the last 56 years, The Trouble with Tribbles. And, and as if it wasn't great enough that we are doing our deep dive into The Trouble with Tribbles, we are joined by a very, very, very special guest. Our special guest, also, in addition to writing The Trouble with Tribbles, he also wrote season three's The Cloudminders and two episodes of the animated series, More Tribbles, More Troubles, and Bem. He is a winner of the Hugo and Nebula Awards. He is the writer of more than 50 books, including When Harley Was One, The Man Who Folded Himself, and The Martian Child, which was turned into a feature film starring John Cusack. He also wrote a series of books for The War Against the Chore and Star Wolf, he wrote books on Star Trek that are, that are absolutely must-reads, The Making of the Trouble with Tribbles and The World of Star Trek, which I got when they were brand new in 1973. Yes, uh, I'm a little on the older side, but he also wrote The Galactic Whirlpool, which came out in 1980, but was based on his very first Star Trek treatment he ever wrote called Tomorrow was yesterday sounds like a familiar title and for tv he wrote for babylon 5 the 80s revival of the twilight zone land of the lost he created the slee stack he created slee stack and tribbles which i think is really awesome so without further ado please welcome to the show david gerald hello david and thank you for joining us on enterprise incidents yeah thank you for having me it's uh, it's fun you guys do good work well, um, thank you so much. I have to tell you that you scared me so much with the slee stacks when I was a kid. I can still hear the sound coming after me. Um, they made a big, big impression. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I love well, hearing they- that I scared the crap out of all those five-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, David, you know, uh, I've I've always loved the Trouble with Tribbles. I remember when I saw it when I was when I was a kid. I was around six years old, and and I just feel like Trouble with Tribbles has really just endured over these years as one of Star Trek's most famous and beloved episodes. The writing, the acting, the directing, the music, the production design, and of course, the cinematography by the great Jerry Finnerman. And one of the things about Trouble with Tribbles is my mother who was not a Trekker by any means, she knows what a Tribble is. And that is saying something about about the iconic appeal of the Trouble with Tribbles. And it is also, David, as you know, it is photo novel number three. Let me uh, say this. Um, I'm very pleased and gratified that the comedy in it holds up. I mean, it's more than half a century old, and it's still funny. You can look at a lot of classic silent films and films in the 30s and 40s and 50s 
Some of them, the comedy does not work anymore. And some of them, you're still laughing out loud. Like Buster Keaton's The General is still one of the very funniest movies ever made. See, with an audience. Um, and yet there are some other things I was looking at recently the past couple of weeks. I was like, oh, my God, why did we ever think this was fun or funny? I'm not going to name, name it because I, <laughs> I could be wrong. But I'm very gratified that uh, because there was a screening of Trouble with Tribbles uh, up at the Skirball uh, a month or so ago, and I was there as a speaker, and I noticed the audience was having a great time laughing and thinking, wow, it's really great that a joke can still be funny a half century later. So I'm very gratified by that. Thank you. You know, you know the thing about that screening at the Skirball, David, obviously I was there too. I moderated your conversation, uh, is is that you know that that screening was full of like grown-ups who are who are our age and and their kids and in some cases their grandkids so it keeps getting passed down just like star trek itself but specifically that episode and you know i know that that the trouble with tribbles is your first produced screenplay like a, as a writer which uh, correct me if i'm wrong i know you were around 22 years old at the time but was the trouble with tribbles the first story that you brought to the table, especially with Gene Kuhn for Star Trek? Um, no, the first one I brought to the table was the outline that became yesterday's, not yesterday's children, uh, uh, my Star Trek novel. What was that called? The Galactic, the, the Whirlpool. Galactic Whirlpool. Right. Uh, oh, boy, even I'm forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I submitted uh, five outlines, but I will say I mentioned what I wanted to do with the Tribble episode when we talked about uh, the galactic whirlpool, what our tomorrow was yesterday and Gino Kuhn said, it sounds expensive and anyone else would have said, Oh, well then it's a no go. But I wrote it as an outline and explained how it could be done. And Dorothy Fontana pulled it out of the slush pile and said, you know, we could do something with this. She said it had whimsy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. We didn't expect it to turn into a, a, a body comedy there with the, you know, the, great character relationships so but it pretty much was the one i i most wanted to do because it was such a silly idea that and the one that wasn't done bandy which has been ripped off a number of times uh by uh uh people who should know better but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh um yeah but tribbles i guess you would have to say dribbles was the first uh, well, it's certainly the word whimsy is exactly the right word. And what you said is absolutely true. I was just watching it. The jokes all hold up. And I think part of why it holds up so well is that, A, you've got really good comic actors delivering them. And B, they're really based in these characters. And it just really works for them. Yeah. The uh, the only r- real regret is I, I was too shy to suggest casting. I really wanted someone like Boris Karloff or Boris himself to play Cyrano Jones. Oh, wow. That was how I imagined Cyr- uh, Cyrano. I was like, can you imagine? Would you like, can I interest you in a harmless little tribble? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and if I had done that, I think uh, we would even be remembering the episode even more remarkably. I just, I, I did not know that I could have made that suggestion. And I think Gene Kuhn would have gone for it. You, you know, you, you bring up Gene Alcoon, and, and we have really sung his praises many, many, many times here on Enterprise Incidents. You know, David, we're going in production order, which is really the best way to track the the evolution of the series, the characters, 
certainly the uh, the way that the series went from being really, really good in the first half of its first season to being really, really great when Gene L. Kuhn came on as a showrunner in halfway through that first season. And not only did you get to work with Gene Kuhn, but he was like something of a mentor to you. How did he really sort of take you under his wing and what kind of uh, nurturing did he give you to help you develop the trouble with triples? Well, I, it, it's hard to say, I mean, come on, we're talking about memories a half century, more than half a century old, but I, I think that Gene L. Kuhn respected writers. And I think he was intrigued by the fact that I had this passion for the show as well as uh, an ability to think on my feet. Because every time he said, we have to solve this problem, I had three or four answers. And and uh, let me jump ahead. I'll tell you a story. After the triple script was approved and in production, he called me into his office. He said, I want you to read this script. And he gave me I Mud. And uh, um, he said, come back, read this and come back this afternoon. We'll talk. So I read it. He called me back and he said, here's the problem. We want to get down to the planet in the first 14 pages and we can't solve the problem. So far, we only get him down to the planet by page 30. By the end of the second act, we wanted to be out by the end of the first act, the first commercial. And he said, how can you get us there? And I said, well, you cannot have um, one of the androids imitate Kirk's voice and order the crew to beam down because on the episode that was just rerun last night, somebody tried to imitate Kirk's voice and Scotty wouldn't believe it. So you can't do that. So right there, he was, you know, he, he knew I was paying attention. I said, but you don't have to, uh, because you've already established in this teaser how strong Norman is. That that means all the androids are that strong. So all you have to do is have all the androids grab the crew members and beam them down. <laughs> but you don't have to show it. All you have to do is have an android walk in and say, we have completed beaming down the crew of the Enterprise. This is and the Gene's last eyes went wide and he says... You've just solved in one line of dialogue what we have not been able to solve in two weeks of rewriting. You've got a re- go ahead, go home, take this, rewrite that. And uh, and I came back and I had turned the two uh, uh, written in the twins as 500 identical androids. And he says, why? I said, why not? It's funny. And he <laughs> says, okay. And he left it in. And then there was a lot of other uh, tweaking of the script, a lot of other stuff. Because he wanted, you know, we had to drive the whole andro- all the androids crazy. So there's a lot of stuff with that they added with the crew doing their little dances and whatever. Which I, I you know, it was there was it was over the top more than I was willing to go. But, um, but I think what impressed him was that I was a problem solver, mm-hmm. and and he was willing to throw problems at me to see what I would say. And sometimes you would say we can't do that because of this and this and this. But at one point with the Tribble script, I had said to him, we need a threat. We need a menace here. And the Tribbles aren't enough. I says, can I use the Klingons that were established in Errand of Mercy? And he says, well, you know, we have been talking about a recurring nemesis for the ship. And the Klingons would probably work. So go ahead, use the Klingons. So he knew I was a problem solver because I was always trying to be one step ahead uh, of how do we shoot this? How do we show it? And um, at one point, Matt Jeffries had said, your script is too expensive. You have a trading post over here and a bar over here. I said, what if I jam them together? That's one less actor and one less set. 
He says, okay, we can do that. That'll, and that brings the show in under budget. So I, I think, you know, Matt Jeffries and Gino Kuhn, a couple other people were very interested. Here's this young kid who really is in tune with the show. Bob Justman, however, and I love Bob, and I don't mean this in any negative way. He thought I was too young and inexperienced to work on Star Trek. And he kind of held on to that position for a long time, even after Tribbles won a Hugo nomination. But, but Bob and I hit it off very, very well over the years. And and before he died, he he and I had some long conversations how much he admired my work and how much. Oh, I, that's great. So I felt so, vindicated by that. So I just want you know, we've been talking about how this show got made for a long time. One thing I, I just want to highlight of what you said is people think of the job of the writer is to come up and imagine all these crazy ideas, which sometimes that is the job. But a lot of times the job is how do I get to this moment 10 pages earlier, cut two locations, cut three actors and make it all make sense. And that's that problem solving brain is one of the most important things, particularly on a TV show. Where yeah, how do I make I'm, it work? Yeah, how do you make it work? That's the job. Yeah, I've, I've met people who think the job of the writer is to write down what the actors say after they've said it. <laughs> no, 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 no. The actors don't say anything. Let me put it this way. If it weren't for the writer, all you'd have is a bunch of naked people standing around in the dark wondering what to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, oftentimes on Enterprise Incidents, uh, Steve and I have talked about this brain trust of writer-producers, obviously Roddenberry, obviously Gene Kuhn, but also Dorothy Fontana, uh, just what really, I mean, she wrote so many great screenplays and really, really uh, deepened the uh, the Vulcan uh, culture and heritage. But, you know, and she's just someone who became, you know, you, someone else you became pretty friendly with over these years. Uh, what, were, what was her first impression when she took a look at uh, your work for Trouble with Tribbles? Um, well, she thought I was young and awkward and inexperienced and arrogant, <laughs> which I was. I'm mean, not arguing. I mean, it's like, you know, I was a, a fanboy. And uh, but Dorothy was enormously help, helpful. She gave me uh, incredibly good advice about how to make things work. And uh, we became it took a while um, uh, when we realized we were both um part of this very interesting phenomenon. And, uh, you know, I, I respected her enormously and, and vice versa. And we saw each other at a lot of conventions and, and had a lot of fun together. So there was a point at which um, when uh, the Star Trek animated show was uh, started, she called me and said, well, you're going to do a triple episode for me, aren't you? Because she was <laughs> effectively producing. I said, of course, I'll do a triple episode for you. And uh and then uh, a year later, when I was doing Land of the Lost for Sid and Marty Croft, I said, I would love to have you uh, uh, do a script for me. But uh, here's what I would like is you did this wonderful script uh, yesteryear for the animated series. I want you to do that for Land of the Lost, but I want you to turn it around instead of uh, where Holly meets her older self. Instead of going back in time, uh, we want to meet the, the woman she becomes and uh, oh. and Dorothy did a very, very good job with that. In fact, I took a look at that episode a few months ago just to refresh my mind. Uh, uh, how did that work out? And, uh, of course, it was uh, one of the better episodes of Land of the Lost. So, um, And then when she was on Logan's Run, they called me in to do an episode. And I wrote uh, Man Out of Time for Logan's Run. 
which I wasn't happy with the meddling from Goff and Roberts, who I never met. They were executive producers. I worked with Len Katzman, so I thought we're and Dorothy, and I thought we had a relationship. But then we'd get these notes from Goff and Roberts, who, knew, who did not know science fiction, and and I wanted to put a one gag in it. Uh, going a little off topic here, but there's this time machine, and the first test is a rabbit. And I wanted to do a gag where uh, Rem, the robot, is carrying this rabbit around for a while, but they've misidentified it as an elephant. I thought elephants were bigger. You know, <laughs> like it would be a funny gag, but they ended up, it had to be so serious that even the lightest little touch of comedy had to be taken out. And I think that's one of the reasons why Logan's Run didn't work very well is, is some producers are afraid, some producers are afraid of comedy. And, uh, and, in, and in fact, even Gene Roddenberry, um, uh, he didn't understand jokes. He didn't understand that the way you bring characters to life is that you allow them to have jokes. Um, and if you've ever been to a, a funeral, you know, some of his eulogies oh, yeah. are hysterical. And, you know, my mom's funeral, we didn't, I mean, we were laughing so hard. She would have loved it. It was a great, we all had a great time because people tell jokes. And uh, I always think that the, that's one of the ways you get your audience hooked on your show is you allow your heroes to have a sense of humor. And I think this is part of the reason why the James Bond movies were such a big hit when they, uh, because Bond, after, after every bit of violence, he had that little uh, snarky little remark. Right, right. You know, I think uh, Gene Kuhn really did lean into the humor of it, and uh, uh, much of the development of Trouble with Tribbles took place while Gene Roddenberry was away from the studio. He was he was prepping and developing a TV movie for Robin Hood, which never got off the ground. I was um, told he was on vacation. <laughs> well, maybe he was doing both. But Whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, he spread himself too thin. He should have stayed there and worked on Star Trek because I really want to give Gene credit that if you look at the first season of Star Trek, there was an enormous amount of gravitas. Almost every single yeah. episode worked. They took themselves serious. They were really um, just all around good episodes, except for the alternative factor and the problems there were not his fault. Right. They were, you know, the actor quit the night before and the script was not ready anyway and they had to readjust. So, but um, you you look at even like Conscious of the King, you can see they're trying to be very straightforward and serious and, and Mud's Women and and uh, and the Corbomite Maneuver and, and the Balance of Terror. And, and I mean, there are so many good episodes in that first season. And, uh, and the one thing about second season with Gene Kuhn in charge is... Some of that gravitas got lost. Uh, and I and I was that, you know, you look at it in perspective and say, why did we lose the gravitas? I don't mind the comedy. I think the comedy helped the show enormous. But I really wish we could have kept that serious. And that was what Gene said, uh, said in the uh, writer-director's guide. If I won't believe it on the bridge of the battleship Missouri, I won't believe it on the bridge of the starship Enterprise. Mm -hmm. Something I reminded, tried to remind people of uh, a next generation. <laughs> That's well, I, I just want to highlight what you said, because I think it's because you said two things. The first one was the importance of humor. And the second one was the importance of seriousness. Yeah, and I think that is key to Star Trek. I really yeah. do. It's the mix. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. of, And if you look at the movies with the original cast, um, especially the ones Nicholas Meyer was involved in, there's a lot of great humor in those. Mm -hmm. A lot of really good humor. 
Well, some background information on the trouble with Tribbles. At first, uh, David's David's uh, spec treatment was called the Fuzzies, and that was dated February of 1967. And then when uh, David went to Story Outline, the title changed to a, a fuzzy, fuzzy thing happened to me. Yes, a fuzzy thing <laughs> happened to me. That was June 13th. So David did two draft teleplays, the second of which came on July 19th. Then Gene L. Kuhn did a script polish dated July 21st. And then David did a polish, a final draft teleplay on July 25th. And then Gene L. Kuhn did a further polish, his revised final draft teleplay dated August 1st. Now, one thing, David, that I think really really led to you really knowing how these characters talked in addition to obviously, you know, watching the episodes as they were in first run is the fact that you got to go to the set and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were on the set for the one and only scene that William Shatner and William Wyndham had together while filming the doomsday machine. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, one of the things is I would went to the set and I would watch them shoot and I would listen to the, the well, I was also watching all the reruns and I was listening to how the actors talked, how the how the characters talked. Uh, you know, Spock had this very uh, thoughtful, methodical way of speaking. Uh, Shatner, because he had to do 60 pages of script every yeah. week, was always right. trying to remember his lines so those where the pauses came from i'm certain i don't know if he'd admit it but i know that if i had to d- memorize 10 pages of script every night i'd be in trouble fortunately when you're doing one scene at a time you have a, a chance to you know get up to speed and then you know and then you forget that and go on to the next but he was there every day whereas all you know the other <laughs> the other dwarves <laughs> you should pardon the expression but that's uh, you know they were there two days a week at most, right? And right. Shatner's there every day. He, fortunately, the man's a workaholic. I cannot say enough good things about Bill Shatner. And uh, <laughs> and and uh, he he was the glue that held the show together. And anybody who trashes him is an idiot because they ha- have no understanding of just how committed he was to making that show work. And we, so we I, are we are we are absolutely in agreement with you, David. Yeah. So, um, so I would listen to the and then I, I'd met the actors, so it listened how they spoke in person. And then while I was on the set, uh, every time somebody put down a script, I'd scoop it up and so I was reading all the episodes that hadn't been shot yet, you know. And I was there when they're shooting the apple. I was there when they're shooting Mirror Mirror. Oh my God! I met Nichelle Nichols the first day I met her. She's in that two-piece bikini outfit. It was a week before my blood pressure returned to normal. That woman, <laughs> beautiful from top to bottom. So I met all the actors and I listened to how they spoke. And uh, part of it was because I, as a theater arts student, I had been trying to learn accents. So I was listening to speech patterns. And so when I wrote the dialogue, uh, I would go home and I'd imagine, how would Bill say this? How would Leonard say this? How does the characters, what's the character's speech pattern? Which is why... I think it was Nichelle said to me, somebody said, I've never seen a script go through so many colored pages and remain so much the same. Mm. Because I would say that about 80 to 90% of the dialogue is what I wrote. Wow. Uh, wow. There's two wow. scenes I did not write. The the teaser, Gene Kuhn wrote uh, the teaser with Chekhov. 
And then he wrote the Ehrman violin scene with Spock. And and I would have loved to have had a chance to rewrite both of those because I think I could have made them funnier. But I'm not going to argue with Gene Alcoon. <laughs> and, and uh, it's, it, you know, they're good scenes. Um, but it, I can tell that I didn't write it. it. And it's like, yeah, I could fix that. <laughs> well, The Trouble with Tribbles was directed by Joseph Pevney, who is definitely one of uh, Star Trek's very top directors next to Mark Daniels and yeah. Ralph Sinetsky. As The Trouble with Tribbles aired for the very, very, very first time. December, December 29, 1967, yeah. I you love this. Another joke, Dorothy Fontana said to me, says, I hope Joe Pedney gets to direct this because he's better with comedy. And I thought, later on, I realized, you do realize Mark Daniels directed all of the I Love Lucy's. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I did not realize that myself at the time. It was like only wow. later, oh my God, I've been working with a fucking legend here. <laughs> well, they were, they're all legends now. We're all legends now. But at the time, you know, Mark Daniels, I love Lucy. God, the man practically invented three-camera television. I know Desi Arnaz gets credit for it, but Mark Daniels made it work. Well, David is absolutely correct. Trouble with Tribbles did indeed air on December 29th, 1967. It was done on schedule in six days. Those six days were between August 23rd and August 30th, 1967. So, the second season budget, as, we, as we've talked about many times in Enterprise Incidents here, was $185,000 per episode. So the amazing thing about The Trouble with Tribbles, with all of those extras and those sets and the 500 Tribbles that were created for this episode, the amazing thing is that it came in under budget. The cost for The Trouble with Tribbles was $184,994, which means Steve and David, Trouble with Tribbles came in $6 <laughs> under budget. So go David and go Joseph Pevney. The composer, or at least the partial composer for The Trouble with Tribbles was Jerry Fielding. Jerry Fielding did two scores for Star Trek. The second one was for Spectre of the Gun. I'll get into his credits later in as we're doing our deep dive, but the score was recorded October 5th, 1967. The visual effects for Trouble with Tribbles, which included the creation of Space Station K-7, were done by the Howard Anderson Company. And as David mentioned, Trouble with Tribbles was nominated for a Hugo Award for 1968, where just like Doomsday Machine in a mock time, it lost to the city on the edge of forever, which you're going to lose to a Star Trek episode. It may as well be Harlan Ellison's City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah, I love Harlan very much. He was like a big brother to me. But um, he campaigned for a lot of awards. He needed those awards to prove something to himself. And and while I would have loved to have taken home the Hugo for Trouble with Tribbles, it would have been an incredible uh, victory in a lot of ways. Um, I've come to the understanding that the award does not necessarily validate the work. What validates the work is the work itself. And once I came to that understanding, it was is liberating. Because now I said, I'm just going to concentrate on writing the story, not on worrying about the awards or the money. <laughs> and and it, it makes a big difference in the attitude that you bring to the, uh, to the story and the work. It's like what's right for the story as opposed to what's going to, you know, uh, make money or win an award. I know there are people who write for awards. Um, 
I well, think they used to. I don't know if they still do, but there was a, a lot of award hunger in in the '60s and '70s, and it got kind of got kind of weird. <laughs> Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when they were filming the Trouble with Tribbles? Lay it on me, Steve. Well, we said that it was filmed between August 22nd and 29th. On August 25th, Bob McNamara, the uh, Secretary of Defense, stood up in front of the Senate to talk about bombings of North Vietnam. And the idea was that these bombings would force the North Vietnamese to the peace table. And McNamara got up and said, this is never going to work. These bombings are never going to work. Mm -hmm. And what happened was the Joint Chiefs of Staff were so upset by this that they had decided to all resign en masse to protest McNamara's statements. And then the next morning, they changed their mind and didn't. But it was almost the end of the entire Joint Chiefs of Staff. On the same day, West Germany became the fourth nation to get color TV. Tunisia on August 26th became the only Arab nation to recognize the state of Israel. Um, And on the same day, Air Force Major George E. Day was shot down over North Vietnam, captured. He escaped got back to South Vietnam and within two miles of a Marine base and was recaptured by the Viet Cong. Oh, wow. Taken back to North Vietnam to a prisoner of war camp, tortured, and the person who shared the cell with him was John McCain. Unbelievable. John McCain uh, built a splint for this guy's severely injured arm. He remained a POW for five years and seven months and was awarded the Medal of Honor uh, in 1976. He basically says if he had gotten one more cold, he would have died. Unbelievable. On August 27, uh, and this one's just tragic, 15 experienced skydivers drowned because their plane opened up the door for them to jump out at the wrong place. So they were over uh, the middle of Lake Erie. And the other thing that happened on August 27th in 1967 is someone else died. Do you know who that was? Uh, no. Brian Epstein. August 27th, 1967. Oh, oh, Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, died at 32 years old. Yep. And that was the that was the beginning of the end yep. when they lost their manager. Absolutely. On August 29th, the final episode of The Fugitive, which was one of my parents' favorite TV shows, aired, and it was seen by 78 million people. That was the largest audience of a TV show in history up to that point. And that is what was going on in the world when they were filming The Trouble with Tribbles. Amazing. You have all that going on in the world. And then you had the filming of this delightful, unforgettable, beloved Star Trek classic. Would you like to get into the trouble with Tribbles? Sure. Let's do that. So we start with the teaser. And David, I totally understand why you might want to rewrite this scene. It's basically an exposition dump. How close will we come to the nearest Klingon outpost if we continue on our present course? One parsec, sir. Close enough to smell them. That is illogical, Ensign. Odors cannot travel through the vacuum of space. Like, that's a little stupid on Spock's part when you think about it. It's like, we know that. Anybody, astronauts know this. But, you know, it's, it's when you think of the time and the, you know, and the character and whatever, it's, it is a very Spock-like line. I was making a little joke, sir. Extremely little, Ensign. And then what we hear about is this place called Sherman's Planet. And that Sherman's Planet is part of... The Organian Peace Treaty. Under the terms of the Organian Peace Treaty, one side or the other must prove it can develop the planet most efficiently. We are establishing more continuity, A, by talking about the Klingons in this episode, but also the Organian Peace Treaty uh, is an extension of Iron Dub Mercy. So, so even though Star Trek was a standalone 
uh, series, you know, one of the things that we've been doing quite successfully here on Enterprise Incidents is cont- uh, linking themes and and character and developments and evolution. And and I just love that this episode takes the Organians and the Peace Treaty and and runs with it to another level right here. Yeah, and the thing is, is you don't have to have seen Errand of Mercy to understand. Right. Oh yeah, in terms of the Organian Peace. Now, if you are familiar with tracking, you say, "Oh wow, they just referenced an earlier episode." And I, I think Gino Kuhn kind of liked that, um, that we were establishing some continuity. So, so you know, Chekhov in this episode uh, is is given another chance to shine. And, you know, here's a character who was only introduced in the second season. But Walter Caney did such a sensational job with this character, really bringing so much levity to the character. Uh, and and there's this, this paternal relationship that Kirk had with Chekhov. And uh, I'm wondering how this episode might have looked if George Takei was here instead of Walter Koenig. And I, I think that Walter really took the opportunity and ran with it because George was off doing the Green Berets with John Wayne, and that gave Walter a big chance to uh, make his mark in, in some of these I, episodes I like it, this I one. think it worked very well for Walter um, and because this was one of his um, – the one of the first episodes where he really got to do more than just sit at the helm. Uh, he really got to be the character they intended him to be. And I think that was a, uh, I think it was good. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I would have liked to have written for Sulu, but, uh, he wasn't there. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and when they said, so, uh, you know, give all of this to Walter, uh, and I met Walter on the set. It's very funny. I'm sitting, was uh, on the set one day and, and here's this uh, guy standing next to me. I didn't know who he was. He, I mean, he's in costume, so maybe he's an extra. And he, he says, uh, uh, who are you? And I said, I'm David Gerald. I'm writing a script. And who are you? So I'm Walter Koenig. I play Cheka. Oh, thank God. I finally get to meet. Now I know who you are. Now I can write for you better. And so uh, I, and, and uh, I, you know, and I love Walter. I think Walter is just, he's, he's very passionate about his work, very committed to his work. And he's, and he gets fussy when he can't do his best. And uh, I've always admired Walter so much. I I think he's just the best. And just as we're getting this information about Space Station K-7 and Sherman's planet, we get a hail from Uhura who says, Captain, I'm picking up a subspace distress call. Priority channel. It's from Space Station K-7. And this is clearly a big deal because immediately... Got a whole factor six. It's called one emergency. That's a disaster call. This is a red alert. Man your battle station. All hands. We needed a hook at the end of the teaser. Right. And it's, unfortunately, it's the same hook we used at the end of Act One. It's like, here's Bam Bam, and you really need a third, in order to complete the triple, you really need something else, a a third priority one distress call to complete. But there was no place for it in the script. Um, so it's always slightly annoyed me that we uh, we had the same uh, hook at the end of the uh, at the end first of the act. and the first act. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it is. It is a structural flaw in what is otherwise a fairly well uh, constructed script. What, sure. what, what's interesting to me, though, is you get a character beat out of it because the use of the priority one is what creates the uh, the conflict between Kirk and Barris. Oh, yes. Yes, very much so. So yes. it works very much for that. And we come back in Act 1, and they're assuming there's a big disaster. Probably the Klingons, the Enterprise is coming in, shields up, phasers armed, ready to go. And they look at the space station. and Everything is peaceful. As quiet as a day in June. 
So Space Station K-7 was built by Richard Dayton. Uh, he built a Space Station K-7. And in the scenes where uh, you're in Niels Barris's office, you see the Enterprise in the distance behind it. That AMT model kit of the Enterprise, which is in those scenes, is on display at the Skirball Cultural Center. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I had asked Gene, uh, the original draft had us going to a planet. And I realized you, if you infest a planet, you'll never get rid of the invasive species. And I said, Gene, can we? And my agent had said, no, no, spaceships, a space station is going to cost him money put on a planet because the original idea was a space station. But I said to Gene Elkun, can we put this on a space station? It'll be neater. And he says, well, we've been wanting to build a space station miniature and use it for other episodes. So, yes, you can put it on a space station. So I learned to trust my instincts and and talk to the producer rather than let my agent dictate. He, he was only my agent for that script. I fired him after that. <laughs> that's a, but that's a different story. He wasn't so, a bad man. He wasn't just wasn't a great agent. <laughs> so so we called down to the space station. We talked to Mr. Lurie, who is the manager of K7. And Kirk, I think we can say, is pissed. Irritated. Yeah. I was going to say irritated, but I think pissed is the better word, Steve. Mr. Lurie, you issued a priority one distress call. State the nature of your emergency. Uh, well, perhaps you better beam over. I'll try to explain. Yeah, he's scared of Captain Kirk. Well, he should be, because uh, uh, remember, uh, the way we thought of it at the time is it, it's like it's Hornblower in space. That's right. And that he represents the authority of the Federation where the Federation um, is not always available. And so he, he's, he's essentially the um, minister at large. That, and, that, yeah. Uh, that, that's something that I only really, because I, I read all those Hornblower books. I've also, the Patrick O'Brien books are my favorites. And those sea captains, when they're, you know, a year away from, from England, they were the diplomat. They, they were, they were everything. They um, represented the crown. Yeah, exactly. Mr. Lurie, if there was no emergency, why did you issue a priority one distress call? That was my order, Captain. We're meeting three people right now. We're meeting Niels Barris, Arne Darbin, and Mr. Lurie. So starting with Mr. Lurie, Lurie was played by Whit Bissell. Whit Bissell, who uh, uh, was in uh, Who Goes There, uh, or uh, The Thing from Another World, and a lot of other great science fiction movies. I never had a chance to meet him. I was afraid to interrupt the actors while they were working. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He was also in The Creature from the Black Lagoon, The yes, Desperate Hours. And he was yeah. in A Gunfight at the OK Corral with DeForest Kelly. I Was a Teenage he, Werewolf, The Magnificent Seven. Yeah, a lot of great movies. Uh, he was in everything. You couldn't make a movie without Whit Bissell. <laughs> that was the rule in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Niels Barris is played by William Showert who definitely a lot of TV credits. William Shallot, he was in Gog. He was uh, at the in the beginning of Them. He was in, uh, God, he was in everything. I met him finally, years and years later, I finally, and he said he got more fan mail off of Star Trek than he ever did off of playing Patty Duke's father. Right, right, that's right. He was on the Patty Duke show. He was also Admiral Harold Harmon Hargrave, the founder of Control in Get Smart. He came back to Star Trek with Deep Space Nine in the episode Sanctuary. And on film, he was in uh, classics like In the Heat of the Night. And he also yep. did Speedway with Elvis Presley. And he was in the movie Inner Space. And Arn Darvin. Arn Darvin. Charlie what Brill. A, what Charlie Brill. David, do you know the story about Charlie Brill and his wife, McCall and Brill? 
Um, they opened for the Beatles on the Elvis Presley on uh, on um, the Ed Sullivan show. They opened for the Beatles. Like, can you imagine wow. being on the Ed Sullivan show the night of February nineteen sixty four? So yes, they they opened for the Beatles, and like they were trying to tell their jokes, and there was all the screaming. Yeah, and- every yeah, it's like they, <laughs> yeah. Mitzi was telling me about that when I saw I, when I met them. She said, we open for the, I, she said, nobody heard us. I said, yeah, but you think of it this way. You opened for the Beatles. I said, oh yeah, I never thought of it that way. But uh, uh, Charlie Burr was also on TV and shows like Rowan and Martin's Laughing, Chips, Wonder Woman, One Day at a Time. And uh, he came back for the 30th anniversary of Star Trek for Deep yes. Space Nine's Trials and Tribulations. Yes. And he also played Captain Harry Lipschitz in TV's Silk Stockings. Lot, <laughs> lots going on in this scene. Captain Kirk, this is Niels Barris. He's out from Earth to take charge of the development project for Sherman's planet. And that gives you the authority to put an entire quadrant on defense alert? Mr. Barris is the Federation Undersecretary in charge of agricultural affairs in this quadrant. And that gives him the authority. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Once again, once again, you have a situation where where Kirk is, uh, especially particularly William Shatner, obviously, is is leaning into the comedy. And he's just oh, so very great at the comedy, whereas Leonard is like this sort of dry uh, sidekick. Deadpan. Yeah, he's a, yeah. yeah, I I later apologized to uh Leonard. I said I know I it's, it's, Spock had been given so much to do in so many other scripts that I downplayed Spock's character in this script and uh, and he joked with me. He says, "Well, you do admit I follow Bill very well." <laughs> and, <laughs> and and uh, you know, Leonard it was uh, I admired him so much. I, I mean, I admired so many members of that cast. Uh, but Leonard had he was Spock in so many ways. Uh, he had the intelligence and the the curiosity of Spock. So I mean, it it, it was perfect casting. Um, he understood Spock better than anybody. Uh, except perhaps Dorothy Fontana, who wrote Spock better than anybody. Mm. Absolutely, she did. Sure. And basically what's interesting to me is that Mr. Barris just irritates Kirk. And now, Captain, I want all available security guards. I want them posted around the storage compartments. Storage compartments, storage compartments. And this is where we hear that the storage compartments contain quadro triticale. The what? The what? Now, in the first draft, it was just triticale. And... Uh, Gino Kuhn says, well, you know, remember, this is like the 23rd century, 24th, whatever century. He says, so we've got to uh, update everything and have it be in the future. He said, so we'll call it quadro triticale. And I said, okay, fine. Makes sense to me. There really was a grain triticale. There really is. I understand it makes a terrific beer, but nobody's ever sent me a bottle of it. Uh, but he's, all right, we'll call it quadro triticale. And it actually sets up a great gag later on where Kirk says, who put the tribbles in the quadro triticale, which is just a... <laughs> this is a great that's, line. That's a funny I mean, line. I'm thinking, who put the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, oh yeah. I can't. I, I the, the worst that can happen is I take the line out. But it's such a funny line because it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just funny. Um, yeah, it's, it's just funny. And then we get a classic Star Trek sort of joke because Mr. Barris is telling Spock and Kirk, "Well, you guys wouldn't know what quadro triticale is." And of course, Spock comes back. Quadro triticale is a high yield grain four-lobed hybrid of wheat and rye, a perennial also, if I'm not mistaken. 
its root grain, triticale, can trace its ancestry all the way back to 20th century Canada. Uh, Mr. Spock, you've made your point. We worked that joke because Kirk has the sample of the grain and he gives it to Chekhov. You know what this is? Ah, quadro triticale. It was invented by a Russian. (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) And it was like, and and does everybody know what this is except me? (laughs) You Uh, know, it's... And it's a fun, it is, you know, Kirk is so busy being captain, he doesn't have time to know all this other stuff. And basically what we find out is the plot is, is that it's this grain that's going to develop Sherman's planet. And because we could develop Sherman's planet, we're going to get it and take it away from the Klingons. Yes. And, and Barris is afraid that the Klingons will sabotage it, which is why he issued the priority one distress call. You issued a priority one distress call for a couple of tons of wheat. And then I love Darwin interrupts and says, Quadro Triticale. And Kirk and uh, Neil Sparrows both look at Arn Darwin like, shut up. <laughs> we, well, we have to establish that he's a weasel, real. <laughs> he re- yeah, that, that is, he really is. You're not supposed to like him. You're not allowed to like him. That's the, the gag. Director Enterprise. Enterprise here. Secure from general quarters. And uh, beam down to, and only two security guards have them report to Mr. Lurie. Now Barris is pissed. Captain Kirk, how dare you authorize a mere two men for a project of this importance? And this is the beginning of Kirk's, what I will call Kirk's sick burns, throughout the entire episode. Starfleet Command. I have never questioned the orders or the intelligence of any representative of the Federation. He walks away. Until now. Now, let me point something out here. Now, remember, we're talking William Shatner, who had been on um, uh, the Boris Karloff show Thriller. He'd been on Twilight Zone twice. He'd been on The Man from UNCLE. Uh, He'd been on a couple other. He was the go-to guy as a guest star, and it was just a matter of time until somebody grabbed him to be the Mm. star of the show. He was, you know, proving himself. But all of these roles were dramatic. He had never done comedy before. He'd never been... and. We all had a little bit of misgivings. Can Bill handle comedy, right? Yeah. Well, obviously, Bill was just itching to do comedy because he just, you just see him in this show doing all these great comedic bits, the slow burn, the look, the this. I mean, he really, and and in retrospect, years later, we look back and say, God, this man loves comedy much more than anything else. Look at Boston Legal. And much as we love him for all of his dramatic work, which we now make people make fun of his dramatic style of acting, his comedy stuff is brilliant. And I was afraid that he wasn't going to want to have the triples dumped on him. I was so I was prepared to rewrite it that he was going to that he steps out of the way and we could still play the same gag. But no, the fact that he let the triples fall on him showed me that Bill is, is, is it showed me something about Bill as a person as well as an actor. So I guess yeah. that's, that's anyway, a great yes. point. Um, and still grumpy, he and Spock head over to the bar. And as you said, Scott, it's the same bar as from Court Martial. And then in walk Uhura and Chekhov. I see you didn't waste any time taking your shore leave. And I, yeah, I love that Uhura pushes back. And how often do I get shore leave? Yeah, she pushes back. She deserves it more than anybody. Yeah. yeah, have you ever noticed she's the most important person on the bridge? Because all she has to do is say captain, and everybody turns around to hear what she's going to say next. <laughs> That's a yeah, great point. That's a great, a great point. point. Yeah, yeah. And, and here we have the moment you mentioned before, David, where Chekhov, of course, recognizes the Quadro Triticale. I've read about this, but uh, I've never seen any before. Does everybody know about the suite but me? Well, not everyone, Captain. It's a Russian invention. Then they head out. And as they head out, in walks Cyrano Jones. Cyrano Jones, played by 
Stanley, Stanley Adams. Adams, who also played the talking carrot on Lost in Space. Yes, <laughs> yeah, the great vegetable rebellion. But uh, uh, Stanley Adams was also in classic films like North by Northwest, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Lilies of the Field. Uh, he was actually not, ju- not just an actor, but he was a co-writer of the third season episode with George Slavin, uh, The Mark of Gideon. He did reprise his role as Cyrano Jones for the animated series episode, More Tribbles, More Troubles, because really nobody can do Cyrano Jones but Stanley Adams. And on TV, he was on shows like Peter Gunn, The Twilight Zone, Wagon Train, Batman. And He uh, showed up in something recently. I forget what it was. I was just watching. All of a sudden, I know that bartender. (laughs) <laughs> I know it was some old classic movie, something from the, it was black and white and uh, maybe it was like Destry Rides Again or something like that. But uh, I don't remember, but it, it's like, oh, there's Stanley again. Stanley. Yeah, he was great. And the first thing that happens is we have a bit of a, and I totally see why this was like the the shop in in the earlier scripts. It makes perfect sense. But now he's trying to make a deal with the bartender. Clearly, these guys know each other before. Clearly, the bartender doesn't want the merchandise from Cyrano Jones that he's seen before. And the bartender was played by Guy Raymond, who was in films like Gypsy and Bandolero with James Stewart. Also on TV in Route 66, Gunsmoke, Green Acres, the Beverly Hillbillies. Guy Raymond was a very talented song and dance man, too. Quite a history. And uh, But when he died, the uh, L.A. Times gave him almost a full-page obituary, like it was two-thirds of the page. Mm-hmm. And half of the obituary was about trouble with tribbles. Oh, Here, geez. this guy had an enormous career, so much other stuff. And all they talked about was the trouble with tribbles. I was like, oh, come on, man. Tell me about Guy Raymond. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah really, uh, but a very hardworking actor and really knew how to deliver, really knew how to deliver. One of the things we've mentioned before that's it's kind of hard if you don't work in the industries to realize he maybe maybe he worked two days, um, yeah. you know, and so it's like Scott and I have probably watched Trouble of Tribbles more than two straight days, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it's a bit it's a bigger place in so much of a bigger place in our lives and a tiny little thing in his life, but that is what he gets remembered for, and that's just so bizarre. That's it's yeah. like Joan Collins getting recognized only for playing Edith Keeler and sitting on the edge of forever, you know, and, and like, you know, she's a legend and people, all, all people want to really talk about, you know, may, maybe Dynasty is up there too, but, you know. <laughs> You're a difficult man to reach, but I have something from the far reaches of the galaxy. And he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a triple. He, and he, but he, what he does is he says, surely you want, and he pulls it out without saying what it is. Yes. And Uhura, who, by the way, all of this, everything that happens in this episode is Uhura's fault. Yes. Because she notices the treble and she's all cute and fuzzy. Oh, it's adorable. What is it? What is it? Why, lovely lady, it's a triple. David Gerald, where did you come up with the name Tribble? All right. So uh, Joni Pierce, Joan Pierce, our research person who kept us honest. She worked for Kellum DeForest Research and every script went to her and she would say she would research the names of characters or this or that. And she was enough of a science fiction fan. She said, well, there's this book by H. Beam Piper, Little Fuzzy. And maybe we don't want to call these critters fuzzies. And Gene Okun said to me, we, we don't want to call them fuzzies. All right. 
So I'll go home and I'll come up with some other name for them. And I made a whole list of silly sounding words and shag bags and gollywogs and triffids, not triffids, triffles, tribble, blah, 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 blah. And I crossed off all the ones that were too silly or I didn't like and ended up with tribbles. And I wasn't crazy about tribbles at first, but it was the, it was the least stupid word. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, all right, yeah, we could make this work, tribbles. And I go back in the next day and I say, or the next meeting with Gene Alcoon, I forget. And uh, I said, okay, so um, now listen to this. Uh, He says, oh, and I want to call, we're going to call the creatures tribbles and we'll call the script the trouble with tribbles. He says, okay. That was it. That was all the conversation to get the word. <laughs> that was it, right? Who knew? Who knew? Yep. <laughs> I'm just thinking, all right, let me just write this script. Okay, we'll call them tribbles. And, I, and I'm not thinking in any other respect because I'm so focused on the, the other problems that I'm dealing with of trying to structure, make this thing work. And if someone came up to you at that moment and said, listen, David, 55 years from now, you're going to be sitting t- talking about this title and telling that story. Yeah, you're going to be sitting in front of a large flat screen yes. video phone call. <laughs> yeah, like, true. Much like Star Trek. Yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, sure, right. Pull the other one now. <laughs> so the triples were designed by Wa Chang. Uh, they were yes. made of carpet and fur. And some of them had mechanical toys in them so they can walk around. Uh, that came through a Jim Rugg and Irving Feinberg. But David, uh, is, is the name Jacqueline Kumer- Right. Yeah, she's the lady who sewed the tribbles. Watch it. See, again, this was a thing that Bob Justman and and uh, Bill Tice and a few others had to do is in order to bring things under budget, they went under the radar. And to get the tribbles sewed, Watch Chang hired Jacqueline, and I never met her, uh, to make the tribbles. And it's not that hard to make a tribble. You start with a figure eight of cloth and you turn it inside out and sew around the edges. You Then you turn it right side up. So those seams don't show and you stuff it full of whatever. And then you sew up the end. And she did this 500 times, all different sizes. Unbelievable. Wow. So that's all we had. And then there was these little, uh, about six of these little uh, mechanical dogs with their heads ripped off. And you shoved the batteries under into them. And there was an on-off switch. And uh, you put this um, jacket of fur over it. And you turn it on and it walks across the... And so if you look at later on when uh, the bridge is full of tribbles, there's one walking on the railing. Yeah. It, it's going, rang, rang, rang. Is it? And so when Bill picks it up, you see he puts his hand underneath. He's switching it off so that it's not making any noise. Right. Oh, wow. And the, and the two that react to Arn Darvin have little bladders inside them. That And what you don't see is Bill has got these wires under these uh, uh, air hoses down his pa- uh, costume or pro- probably down his back and and out of sight is somebody going with the thing to make the tribbles jump up and of course the sound effects are all added later the, the sound so. effects were done by sound effects editor Douglas Grindstaff who combined altered dove coos, screech owl cries and emptying balloons to create the various tribble sounds yes yeah he won't Bite, really? <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first place we get a, a really important plant, which is... Sir, transporting harmful animals from one planet to another 
is against regulations, or weren't you aware of that? And there are two things now going on in the scene. One thing is Cyrano Jones is bargaining with the bartender for the price of a triple, and the other thing that is happening is that cute little triple is making its way over to the quadrogenic. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because Steve, this moment, and David, this is the moment where we first hear the sounds of the new score for this episode composed by Jerry Fielding. I'm going to lessen my price to eight and a half credits. <laughs> so Jerry Fielding, I didn't realize this until I was doing my research for this episode, but Jerry Fielding is a three-time Oscar nominee for his scores for The Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, The Outlaw Josie Wales. He also did film scores for The Bad News Bears and Escape from Alcatraz. He did TV. He did Bewitched, Mikhail's Navy, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, The Bionic Woman. And he wrote the theme song for Hogan's Heroes. I mean, this guy is a legend. <laughs> yeah, he was He was all over the place. And we were lucky to have him on Tribbles. He, was, he just – now, I, I, I will tell you – I'm not crazy about certain uh, musical cues he used. They sounded weird to me, but they're, you know, in retrospect, they work so well. I'm not going to argue with them. <laughs> uh, and now I'm just saying that's my own reaction <clears throat> because uh, obviously the score is classic. I'm not going to argue with the score. He just did a great job. It was a shock to me to hear that music because it was the first time we had heard that music. So it was a bit of a shock. It didn't feel right to me the first time. And I've since grown to, oh, yeah, now I get it. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got more right on the triple episode than than we didn't than we got wrong. I don't we didn't get anything wrong, but exactly. we got so much right well, that it's, it's I mean, and considering, you know, the the time pressure and the money pressure on television that we got so much right, uh, particularly on my first. It, it spoiled me for television because I've rarely had that much good luck in getting a script from here to there. And uh, particularly that scene is pretty much word for word the way I wrote it. So uh, and I, I don't think there was any serious changes in that. I can't remember. Um, I think you're totally right about the music. It is kind of weird and it's, it's very dissonant and it gives you, it should make you feel uncomfortable. It's very different from the rousing sort of Star Trek music we're used to. And, yes. and it makes you feel like, uh Oh, there's something going on. I should be worried about. That's yes. the, what that music makes you feel. And at the yeah. end, at the end, Cyrano Jones makes his deal with the bartender. It, the bartender wants to sell that triple to Ahura, and Cyrano Jones gives it to her. Now, the last shot in that scene is just Cyrano Jones. It's a single on Cyrano Jones. And this is one of the things that I disagreed with. It, personally, I never say, said it out loud, but... Um, because uh, I was sitting in the dailies, they actually had a two shot of Cyrano and the bartender together smiling at Ahura. Mm. And I felt that would have been a much better shot to close that the, use the two shot instead of the single because it, it would have shown a sense of partnership. And yes, have the triple, you know, and then, of course, because then you get the contrast later on when uh, Cyrano returns to uh, the bar and, the, and 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 Guy Raymond has got a bar full of triple. So, um but it, it's a very minor thing. I, I, you know, it's me because I know what, what I, it, I know what was shot, and I saw it in the dailies, and say I, I, I liked that shot better. Right. So, yeah. but you it, know, it, remember, it, I'm a beginner. I'm not, and 
I know there are beginners who have pissed in their own uh, good luck by saying, oh, you should do it this way when the producer and the director already have it in mind how they're going to do it. So, Well, what was, what was your what was your take, David, on what made Joseph Pevney such such a great director for Star Trek? Well, I never really spoke to him at length. He was too busy working. <laughs> and I think that, was probably, that was probably why he was such a great director. Uh, I think he was very much in tune with the show and with the actors. And I mean, he was just a work, uh, just a really good director. Mark um, Daniels was much more friendly and much more kindly to me, even though we never worked together on any episodes. And and I loved Mark a lot. Mark was very generous in spirit. I think Joe was so focused on his work that uh, he didn't have he didn't seem to have time to be friendly to anybody. He was just, and it's not that he was unfriendly. He got along very well with everybody. But I I loved watching Mark work because Mark seemed to have much more rapport. Uh, Joe seemed to be much more methodical, mm. uh, much more focused uh, to the extent that uh, let's just get the shot in the can. I, I didn't see a lot of playfulness or, or repartee or, you know, or joking around is like, all right, they, you know, he would just do it. Whereas with Mark had a very wry sense of humor. There was a uh, thing where they're planning a shot on a doomsday machine. And Bill suggested something about why don't you put a, a flag over the light and I'll lower my head in shade uh, into the shade when I, you know, William Wyndham is killed and that helped with my, and, and Jerry Finnerman is already rigging it, and, and uh, Mark Daniels says, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it did. It, it turned out beautifully. And so, but, you know, Mark had this very wry sense of humor, whereas opposed to uh, that, Joe was just, all right, let's shoot this. Um, and nothing against Joe. I mean, look at what he did. The episodes he turned out were about as flawless as you could ask for. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we're in the briefing room and a Starfleet is calling to say to Kirk, basically, you have to you have to do what Barris says, which Kirk isn't happy about. And then, David, you're right. This ends very much on the same kind of beat as the teaser ends with, which is now, now the Klingons are arriving. Now the Klingons are here. We go to red alert. We get up to the bridge. The Klingons are 100 kilometers off of K7 and they're just sitting there. Mr. Lurie, there's a Klingon warship hanging 100 kilometers off your station. I don't think the Klingons are planning to attack us. Why not? Because at this moment, the captain of the Klingon ship is sitting right here in my office. (laughs) And that, of course, is the end of Act One. But see, that's a really nice, it's a really nice sting, is, is, is that the reveal there gets you hooked really nice if the camera opens up and, 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 yes. uh, it's a it's a really nice it's very filmic it's very dramatically filmic. So so David you know you you were talking about how season one was was you know full of so much uh, uh, gravitas uh, gravitas and they lost some of the gravitas in, in season two even though season two was still really great. Well I you know I blame me you know because. <laughs> I blame me. Trouble with Tribbles was so much fun for everybody. It's a, and, and I mean, they're finding Tribbles on the set for weeks and months afterwards. Uh, like Michelle, <laughs> Michelle had a third boob one time. It was a Tribble, you know, stuff like that. McCoy is operating, pulls it. Captain, you have Tribbles. Uh, so they were having a lot of fun with it. And the episode turned out very, very well. Gene Roddenberry came back, says, Star Trek is not a comedy. That was his falling out with Gene Elkoon. But Gene Elkoon realized you know, we're having a lot of fun doing this fun stuff. We can do more. And it's really, it's a tightrope. How much, you know, you, over here you have to be serious and over here you have people allowing themselves to have a, a fun with what they're doing. 
you know, and you come to an episode like a piece of the action, it's like this is almost slapstick. And I can see it is not the gravitas of the first season. And I think Trouble with Tribbles introduced an element of comedy that perhaps pushed the show in that direction, um, maybe more than it should have gone. I, you know, I think if they'd have returned to the gravitas, it would have been it might have worked a little better. I don't know. But but you know what, David, I, I, I completely understand. And I, I agree with that. But at the same time, watching season one, especially the first half, you know, they're they're trying things out. They're trying to find the footing, the rhythm. You know, Leonard is still trying to figure out how to play Spock. By the time he got to the beginning of season two, you know, Gene Kuhn had been the showrunner and, you know, Jerry Finnerman, I think, was doing some of his very best work as a cinematographer uh, for the original series. I mean, the, the, the show never looked better than it did during the, the second season, especially the first half. But you also had this rhythm with the actors. They knew their characters and the, there was a the, just a great rhythm. They, they, the, everybody was like, I, I feel like Star Trek was really hitting its stride in season two. And especially because he had these three great directors that were sort of uh, revolving uh, Joe Pevney and Mark Daniels and Ralph Sinetsky. And, you know, those are the three greatest directors that worked on Star Trek. No question. It's act two. We're back in uh, Mr. Lurie's office and we begin with. Ah, oh, my dear Captain Kirk. My dear Captain Kolar. Who does that sound like? That was Bill Campbell. That is William Campbell. Now, Gene Kuhn wanted to bring back John Colicos to play Kor, uh, you know, who was the Klingon commander in, uh, obviously, Aaron de Mercy, the first uh, actor to play a Klingon. Uh, but he was not available. But what he did love in the, in the first season, uh, Gene L. Kuhn, was working with William Campbell on the Squire of Gothos. And I love the Squire of Gothos. So, so Campbell brought uh, Campbell back to Star Trek to play Captain Koloth. And yes. their chemistry is great. Shatner and, oh, very, and it was, Oh, yeah. Well, it, Bill Campbell was married to a woman named Judith Exner, who, if you will look her up, she was apparently one of the women who had slept with John F. Kennedy, but was also a uh, mafia mall or whatever the term was. It's worth, she had a very interesting path. I didn't know that one. The one time I met her, I didn't know that history. But it's like she had quite a bit of history of her own. So Wow. One of the things I find so interesting is these guys clearly know each other. And so yes. just with these two lines, we established that, oh, we established something new about the relationship between the Federation and the Klingons and the relationship between <laughs> specifically Captain Kirk. Like Captain yes. Kirk is known by the Klingons. Yes. And the Klingons uh, say they're just there for shore leave. Shore leave. We Klingons are not as luxury minded as you Earthers. We do not equip our ships with, how shall I say it? non-essentials the way he motions non-essentials he's clearly like talking about women and yeah. i thought now, wait a there's minute a much there's a much better angle i don't know what happened to that footage there's a much better angle where he does the uh uh describing the woman's shape with his hands and uh it, it, it's a closer angle on him and you can see his hands much more clearly but they went to the wide shot for yeah, it. They, you don't really see it as, as clear. Maybe you see it clearly now on your big screen television with the high def uh, yeah, uh, Blu-ray, yeah. you know, um, which was remastered in 4K or something. So you're, you know, it's the best image you will ever see of Star Trek, better than the original. How we saw the stuff in dailies because it's been cleaned up and destabilized or re-stabilized, right? Or de-jittered, whatever. And so, I mean, it's it's like the 
the Blu-rays are the most pristine look. And, and so you can see he's moving his hands this way. But uh, I wish they had used the closer angle because it's uh, the w- delivery is so good. But the thing is, like, like actually, the Klingons do have, you know, when they do have because. Well, it, yeah, but they you know, have, you ever made love, have you ever made love to a Klingon woman? I mean, first you have to beat them in combat. <laughs> <laughs> but in season three's Day of the Dove, we actually meet Kang's wife. Uh, Mara is uh, is a, uh, is a woman officer on on the Klingon ship in Day of the Dove. But we'll get to that. <laughs> and, and what we also find out, we find out a little more about this Organian peace treaty because. Koloth says you cannot refuse us, and Lori confirms it. My dear Captain Koloth, you may indeed bring your men down on Shawley, with only 12 at a time. And I assure you that for every man you bring down here, I shall have one security guard. There'll be no trouble. Shatner is so great in this scene. Like, the Klingons know him, the Klingons don't really like him, and he doesn't care. (laughs) We're really seeing a side of Shatner uh, and of Kirk that we have not really seen in many other episodes. We're really seeing, uh, because this was one of the goals, is that not every alien we meet is going to be scary and ugly, and that's how we know it's a menace. Sometimes the cute ones are going to be more destructive. And that was the goal, is to show that aliens can happen every different way. and uh, But also to show that the minutiae of running a starship is you have to have executive capabilities. And... You know, this is Kirk being the executive of the starship, not right. just a, not just the captain who goes out and solves big problems, but he's got all these little things to deal with, and he has to know the rules and the regulations, and he and it's annoying to him because he'd much rather solve a problem like what is this thing that's eating people in the mines in Devil in the Dark, you know, or what is over <laughs> here happening with the apple, you know. He'd much rather be dealing with the big problems, and here's he's got this little one, which was the goal of the show: is to it, we're not saving the galaxy this week. We have a bigger problem. We have a little problem. <laughs> well, and I like I like the fact that we've set up the bad guys is they have some plan, and we don't know what it is. Like they're yes. clearly here for a reason, and yeah. they're using the law in order to help them do whatever this plan is. We're back up on the Enterprise in the rec room, and there's Scotty looking at the monitor, and in comes Kirk and says, Another technical journal, Scotty? Aye. Don't you ever relax? I am relaxing. Here's what's great. So we're establishing that when Scotty wants to relax, he reads technical journals. And then fast forward to 1991. In Star Trek VI, you see Scotty in the briefing room you know, right before he discovers the uh, uniforms of the of the two people who killed uh, uh, Chancellor Gorkhan, but he's sitting in the in the briefing room and he's reading technical journals of the Enterprise. First of all, I thought it was really cool that they're sort of continuing that theme that he loves reading the technical journals. But the other thing I thought of is, doesn't he know these journals by heart by now? But then again, well, I'm thinking there's, there's always new ones. Shouldn't I know these Star Trek episodes by heart? But I'm still watching them. <laughs> Well, but, you know, um, there's a lot of stuff that you try and put in, like if you were like uh, I was writing computer programs for a while. There were days when I had to go back and look up yeah. exactly how does this function work so I could use it. I mean, because I hadn't used it in a week and you forget, you know, <laughs> so and, and you know, a starship has got to be super complex. But also there's improvements. It's, oh, look, yeah. we can do this now and, you know, make this. So, yeah. But that's all in the writer's director's guide that Scotty would rather be with his technical journals than anything mm. else. And, but nobody had used it. You know, right. and somebody says, where did you get this? Well, it's in the writer's director's guide, which I actually read. Oh, you read the writer's director's guide? 
How? You read it like Scotty reads the technical journals. Yeah, I was like, how do you do this show? It's like it's the instruction manual. It's, it's so and, and 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 Bob Justman said about the trouble with tribbles. He says this episode has more to reveals more about Scotty's character than anything we've done yet. I literally, that's what I was about to say. I, we've been talking so much about Scotty through the second season and how and his development, and there've been great episodes, particularly like Doomsday Machine and um, and Mirror Mirror. But I think this is the episode that nails him. I think yeah. this or, sets who Scotty is for the future. Yeah, for all of the the criticism that Bob Justman had about my young age, <laughs> when there's that that scene with Kirk and Scotty who started the fight, right? And which is a really terrific scene. It's one of it's probably my favorite in the whole script. Bob Justman wrote a memo where he said this is the best scene. Uh, for showing the relationship between Kirk and Scotty we've ever had. Wow. And, and I mean, high praise from Bob Justman. And Absolutely. I couldn't quite connect that this kid, David Gerald, really knows <laughs> our characters. <laughs> um, and, yeah. then, and then we have a thing, Scott, that you've commented on many times. Before we see the Tribbles, we hear them. They are over on the table, and it's not just one Tribble. It's not just two Tribbles. Uhura has a lot of Tribbles and a big crowd of people checking them out. This is all Uhura's fault. <laughs> it is. It is. How long have you had that thing, Lieutenant? Since yesterday, Doctor. This morning I found out that he, I mean, she had had babies. And the first reaction is that she got a bargain. Um, and, and even I, I think as a kid, went, I don't think this is a good thing. And partially it's because of that music, I think, is kind of cluing you into that. Yeah, the um, music lets you know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is not good. The most curious creature, Captain. It's trilling seems to have a tranquilizing effect on the human nervous system. Fortunately, of course, I am immune to its effect. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard did that so nicely, and then everybody turns and looks at him. That's just, you know, it's just a great moment. And, and the way he puts the triple exactly. down, like, after exactly. he's like, you know, they all look at him, and he puts the triple down, like, like what are you all looking at? <laughs> Lieutenant, do you mind if I take one of these down to the lab and see what makes it tick? And I love Uhura's response. Well, all right, doctor, but if you're going to dissect it, I don't want to know about it. I want to harm a hair on its head, wherever that is. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone's like, hey, I want one. And so all of them take their tribbles. And just like, uh, uh, you know, any problem, the uh, the virus spreads very quickly, exactly. doesn't it? <laughs> um and Barris calls up for Kirk. Kirk, this station is swarming with Klingons. I was not aware, Mr. Barris, that 12 Klingons constitutes a swarm. Just the fact that Barris is calling mm -hmm. is enough to give Kirk a headache. <laughs> but, by the way, I, I, have dealt, I have dealt with this person. You know, like that person that like keeps on you. And it's like, just, I, I don't, I, we'll take care of it. Stop. Mr. Barris, I have guards around the grain. I have guards around the Klingons. The only reason those guards are there is because Starfleet wants them there. As for what you want. And he looks at Spock and he just, you know, that that beat, that comedic beat that he obviously is very, very good at doing. It has been noted and logged. Kirk out. Now, when I watch the scene uh, for the last like, I don't know, 20 years or so, whenever I watch the scene in the trouble with Tribbles between Kirk and Spock standing at the at the, uh, you know, the communicator on the wall. I think of that same scene repurposed for trials and tribulations with Cisco and Dax behind them 
uh, it's it's such a well done uh, VFX shot of having the Deep Space Nine people in the same shot as the TOS people, and and I just always think of of that moment when Dax, played by the beautiful and the delightful Terry Farrell, says, "He's so much more handsome in person. Those eyes." Kirk had quite the reputation as a ladies' man. Uh, not him, Spock. <laughs> The the thing that I th- what I was thinking of and this is because David you uh, Scott and I have been sort of looking at the show with more continuity than was probably intended. But I'm going like, man, Kirk is so much more sarcastic with this guy than we've ever seen him be before. And I suddenly went, well, maybe after dealing with Ferris and all these other Federation officials that he's dealt with, he's had enough. You know, he's yeah. he's he's gone down this road too many times. And Scott, as you said, he's got a headache. <laughs> now, um, now, my sister had uh, just delivered a baby on the 27th, and she had said to the doctor, uh, "I, you know, I don't care what you do. I've got to watch Star Trek on the 29th. Now, she had never, she was not a fan of the show. And I think this was one of the first episodes she'd ever seen, because uh, when I finally had a chance to talk to her, she said, are these people always that sarcastic? And I said, no, actually, they're not. Um, this was uh, pretty much uh, the beginning of developing a whole different range of uh, reactions and, and uh, context for uh, a lot of the characters. So it was a shift in the characters, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was now this is one of the reasons I, I haven't done more television is, I, you know, it's I always look at what's the formula for the show and how do I break it? <laughs> how do I challenge the formula in a way that expands what's possible on this show? And a lot of producers don't want their formula challenged. Right. They want you to leave it alone and just work with it. You know, and, and there's some shows, uh, it's another slice off the same old baloney. Yeah. And and I can't develop much enthusiasm for that. You know, do you want to come in and work? Right? No, I don't have any enthusiasm on that one. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Bones, what do you got for a headache? Let me guess. The Klingons. Barry's. Oh. Bones had taken one triple. You've got uh, an 11. You noticed that, huh? How do they... Uh, how do they... I, uh, I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, this is a, now like the third time they wanted to talk about sex, but they right. danced around it. You know, they're just not allowed to talk about sex, I guess, in 1967 on television. McCoy has figured out that basically half a triple is, den- is geared for reproduction. Do you know what you get if you feed a triple too much? I like Kirk's response. A fat triple. Now, where that joke came from is Mary Poppins. What do you get if you feed? I wouldn't want to feed the birds. <clears throat> you know what you get if you feed the birds? You get fat birds. <laughs> right? Remember that from Mary yeah, Poppins? Right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so it's a callback to that joke. What if you get what do you get if you feed a triple too much? You get a fat triple? No. <laughs> so we did so it's a it's it's a callback to an earlier joke, which I think some people picked up on it, maybe did not. I don't know. Um, but I did. I thought, you know, I can have some fun with that joke. That's great. Um, well, you twisted it. That, that's yeah. great. Um, we're in the transporter room. A whole bunch of uh, crew members are heading down for shore leave. Scotty is there. And Kirk basically gives a speech saying, stay in groups, avoid trouble with the Klingons. I'll tell them before they go, sir. That line doesn't quite make sense to me because he's Kirk just he's told them there. all. Yeah, yeah he's, he's there. Well, if you're not, if 
he he just told them all. You don't need to tell them because yeah. Kirk just said it. And that, but you know, but that's it sets going up to establish need, yeah. that, that Scotty is not going. Scotty's not going, and Kirk says, "Scotty, I want you to go too." Make sure that everybody stays out of trouble. But Captain, I sir, we're back at the bar. This is one of the great scenes. This was done on day six out of six of during the filming of the Trouble with Tribbles, and right. they saved the fight scene for the last day. Because if something goes wrong or if there's something they got to go over, over schedule a little bit, you know, everything else is already finished. But as it turns out, Joseph Pevney brought it in under schedule anyway. But this was all done on day six of filming The Trouble with Tribbles. It's a big fight scene. It is. And the stuntman, the stunt coordinator <coughs> said to Joe Pevney, what can we break? <laughs> and Pevney <laughs> said, we rented the chairs, we built the tables. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, and Cyrano Jones is there trying to sell tribbles. Uh, he goes over to the bar and then he goes to a Klingon and the tribble that has been peaceful and purring throughout this whole episode freaks out. Ah, friend Klingon. Can I interest you in a harmless little tribble? Get it away from me. Now that Klingon is Korax played by, by Michael, Michael Pataki. Michael Pataki. Talk about an actor who's been working steadily for decades on film. He was in Easy Rider, Airport 77, Raise the Titanic. And remember the movie Night Shift with Michael Keaton? Of course. And Henry Winkler? Remember the guy in the courtroom who turns around and pulls down his pants and he moons? (laughs) That's that's Korax. Wow. (laughs) And he was also Nikolai Koloff in Rocky IV. So he has had quite the career. He and I exchanged a few phone calls um, uh, in the couple of years before he passed away. And we were going to get together and have lunch or whatever, but it never happened. But Uh, uh, we we talked on the phone a couple of times. He's just a really nice guy. (laughs) And of course, he he says, oh, yeah, I get so many people remember me from Star Trek. Another one. Of course they do. (laughs) He is fantastic. I think he, I think he's critical to this episode for what he has to do in this scene. And, and I have a question for you, David, because it seems to me, it's not just that the Klingons, that the Tribbles really freak out when they're around Klingons is that just as um, they have a, a tranquilizing effect on humans, it seems like they physically. The Klingons. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things you want to notice about Pataki's performance, and I didn't even notice it the first couple times I saw the episode, is he mocks Scotty's accent at the end. Mm-hmm. He he, I forget the line because uh, I haven't got it memorized. Okay, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. So yeah, but he he actually mocks Scotty's accent, which I thought was stunning, perfect yeah. for a comedy, for but also for enraging Scott. Oh, he sure did. So Cyrano Jones isn't going to make a sale there. So he heads back to the bartender to maybe sell him a few more tribbles. And the bartender says tribble. And then this whole physical bit is hilarious. Yeah. He takes it out once and he takes out another. And then he, another another beat, he takes out another. And then he just one after the other with each hand, more tribble after another. And you're right. It's a, it's a nice delightful comedic moment well and the key to it you know david you mentioned uh buster keaton in the general uh earlier it's the deadpan face it's that he's not doing it he's not putting any spin on it with his facial expression that's part of what sells the gag 
Yeah, Guy Raymond was marvelous. I, he's, I can't imagine anyone else, anyone else playing that part as well as Guy Raymond did. I was just, I was afraid to meet the actors because my experience with actors is they get so involved in what they're doing, they don't want to be pulled out of character. So I was very polite and I was afraid to talk to the actors. I, I regret it now. I should have gone up and said hello and you know how thrilled I am that uh, this is my first sale and such good cast. But who knew? Yeah. It depends on the actor, and in, but in general, actors want to meet the writer. That's a person. Uh, I know that yeah. now, yeah. yeah. When are you going to get off that milk diet, lad? This is vodka. Where I come from, not soda pop. Well, this is a drink for a man. Scotch? It was invented by a little old lady from Lady in Leningrad, yeah. That, I, just, I just love that, again, you know, we just were introduced to Chekhov in the beginning of Cat's Paw, and now we're about 13 episodes into the production of season two. And you've got this great running gag where Chekhov turns everything into it was invented in Russia. And it, it's so fitting. And I just love the levity that Walter Koenig really did bring to yeah, the, yeah. You know, and the because series. Because Walter delivered it straight face. Like he absolutely believed it. <laughs> and, very, you know, I mean, yeah, it, that dialogue, that line had to be delivered straight face you could you couldn't mug you couldn't put any you couldn't spin on it you had to total total believability and walter brought that to everything he's everything he did walter uh, you know as an actor he brought both he believed what he was saying and so you had to as well and now it's time for corax to i mean and this is clearly planned out like he is definitely instigating something on purpose gestures to the tribbles and says the earth is like those fuzzy things don't they? Well, he's he's drunk. He's clearly drunk, is what I think, and that's why he's he's about to instigate Scotty and Chekhov in the gang. But he wants to start a fight. Yes, he certainly yes. does. Oh, frankly, I never liked Earthers. They remind me of regular bloodworts. <laughs> <laughs> and Chekhov's kind of ready to fight right there. And I I love this setup so much, David. I think it's so perfect how you did this because scotty settles him down easy lad easy lad we're big enough to take a few insults there is one earth man who doesn't remind me of a regular bloodworm that's kirk a regular bloodworm soft and shapeless but kirk isn't soft and david i this line is so good, and I can picture, I, I bet, you searching for the adjectives and the right ones and how they fit together, and this is perfect. Kirk may be a swaggering, overbearing, tin-plated dictator with delusions of godhood, but he's not soft. <laughs> wow. That's a great line. I think this may have been one of the things that Gene Roddenberry objected to is because Gene had, was very clear, you don't make fun of the captain. Uh, because oh. Gene identified very, very strongly with Kirk and later on with Next Generation, very strongly with Picard. To him, the captain of the Enterprise was his avatar. And to any criticism of that avatar, Roddenberry was going to have a problem with it. And uh, this line of dialogue, I'm sure he, he must have flinched when he saw the episode, um, that, even it, though we're setting up something else. Well, and that's just so, I, I obviously I'll honor Gene Roddenberry for the rest of my life, but 
that doesn't take anything away from Kirk. It, no, it we're doesn't. not. You don't hear that and go, oh yeah, maybe I don't like Kirk as much. What it does is it establishes. It actually builds up Kirk in a way because what it says is Kirk is famous even among the Klingons. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a very realistic line. It's it's how people talk about their their opponents. You know that comes from the sports arena. Is is you know they, the quarterbacks will talk about the uh, the other team, and they may say, "Well, he may be a jerk, but man, he's he hard to beat." <laughs> you know that well, kind of thing. Well, Chekhov said, "You know, close enough to smell them." At the very beginning of the episode, that's yeah. what you say about the other side. And yeah. speaking of Chekhov, he chugs his vodka. And he gets up again, and again, Scotty settles him down. Take it easy, lad. Everybody's entitled to an opinion. And he says, drink your drink. And he pushes forward his scotch. Yeah, drink your drink, lad. <laughs> and I love I love Chekhov has a great reaction when he starts to drink and then realizes, this is not my drink. <laughs> <laughs> and if I think that Kirk is a Denebian slime devil, well, that's my opinion, too. Don't do it, mister, or that's an order. Here's why I think this is so important, is that Scotty is doing exactly what Kirk told him to do. Uh-huh. Scotty is being the mature person who's settling everything down and would go like, oh, he's so responsible. This is how, you know, and this is the Scotty we've seen throughout all of the series. Scotty's your go-to guy who is always going to do what he's supposed to. And then... Korax moves on to the Enterprise. And that's uh, them's fighting words, as they say. Of course, I'd say that Captain Kirk deserves his ship. We like the Enterprise. We we really do. (laughs) That sagging old rust bucket is designed like a garbage scow. Half the quadrant knows it. That's why they're learning to speak Klingonese. <laughs> I love everything about the, the lines. I love how he delivers them. He, he, and you could feel like sometimes an actor gets gets a piece of script and is just thrilled. Like, I get to do this. Yeah, th- there's no question that, yeah. that Jimmy and, and everybody in this cast, poor George, he's off doing the Green Berets and yeah. he's missing out on, on one of Star Trek's very best episodes. And at this moment is when we as the audience start to realize where the scene's going to go. Laddie, don't you think you should rephrase that? This is where Korax imitates his accent and says, You're right, I should. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to say that the Enterprise should be hauling garbage. I meant to say that it should be hauled away as garbage. (laughs) Now, at this moment, Scotty has had enough, puts his drink down, he slowly gets up, and while Korax is looking around the room laughing, Scotty throws the first punch. That first punch happens at 24 minutes and 10 seconds into the episode, and it concludes at the end of Act 2, which is 26 minutes and 12 uh, uh, seconds, meaning that this fight scene is two minutes and two seconds long. So I'm curious, David, when you wrote the script and you got to this fight scene, did you write like, I want to be one of those classic barroom brawls from like an old Western? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I said, this has got to be a barroom brawl. I think it's like Industry Rides Again has yeah. the, the the big barroom brawl. I think it's that picture, which is the classic that nobody's ever matched. This needs it. It needs 
action of some kind and it needs a comedic scene and it you know and of course this is where joe pevney and the stunt crew excelled because they came up with all the bits of business because i didn't i wrote a line of dialogue before scotty punches uh, the klingon and bob justman wrote i don't think this line is necessary i think scotty should just get up and punch him yeah. and gino kuhn agreed and and i saw the memo and said yeah you're right and uh, so I took the line of dialogue out and it is the, and in the script, it says, this is just a big barroom brawl. Do what you can. I had learned this from Erwin R. Blacker in um, uh, he says, if you look at the script for charge of the light brigade, you get to page whatever. And it's and it's they charge. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because it's up to the director and the and the stunt crew and the, and the effects crew and everybody. How are you going to do, you know, and you storyboard that out? Well, uh, Joe Pedney and the stunt coordinator and and the stuntmen who were going to do the fight did a marvelous job of figuring out what shots they needed and how to make it all work. And it was just, it it really, I mean, it's a barroom brawl. A lot of this script, and I, you know, I'm willing to admit it. A lot of this script is stitched together from all of the great tropes of of great cinema, all of the great moments of some of the gags are re- statements of great gags. I want to read a, a, a portion of David's script here. Something snaps. Perhaps it is the swizzle stick in Scott's hands. Without a word, Scotty stands up and belts the Klingon across the chops. The Klingon is hurled clear across the room and onto the table of his friends. It collapses onto the floor with him in the center of it. And then David's next line is, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And there's so many great bits. First of all, we have the bartender who runs terrified out of the room. And Cyrano Jones sees his opportunity to get behind the bar. So he's getting free drinks. We have Chekhov punching this guy in the gut and getting nowhere. And after it was shot, that was when Walter figured out something else he could have done. But it was too late. It had already been shot. And he takes a decent fall, it looks like, going towards camera. Yeah, Walter Walter was unafraid. you know, in those days, you you know, you we all thought we were invulnerable. Well, well, Jamie, James Dewan insisted on doing most of his own stunts, and he and according to him, he did ninety five percent of his own stunts in this scene with a little bit of help from stuntman Jay Jones uh, and course. Steve. You know Jay Jones, don't you? At this you? point, yes. <laughs> yeah, he's he's taken a beating throughout uh, throughout this second season. He sure has. And we have all the the cliches. We have guys flying over the bars. We have tables breaking. People slammed into walls. We have reversals. It's all really great. And throughout the whole thing, we have Cyrano Jones happily drinking drink after drink. And then, and this is so hard to choreograph just right. His walk holding his drink back through the fight scene as guys are flying in every direction. Uh, is fantastic. And, and this was ma- modeled after Tony Curtis in the pie fight in the great race. Oh, that's great. That's great. And I love too, that he makes it to the door. He's about to drink his drink and in comes the bartender, takes that drink away. Jones kind of laughs him off, pulls another drink out of his pocket, drinks his drink, nods. And that brings us to the end of act two. Uh, we come back in Act Three with a with a captain's log. I love when the captain's log are not just exposition dumps, but are actually have some character to them. And Kirk says a small disturbance, disturbance. <laughs> between the Klingon crew and the Enterprise crew. He cancels shore leave, and then we have one of you, you mentioned it before. 
but it is one of the great scenes. Yeah, the lineup. I love the lineup. And Kirk wants to find out who threw the first punch. I don't know, sir. The first guy he asks is Ensign Freeman. They actually gave him a name. He was in like 13 episodes of Star Trek. He was usually a stuntman in episodes like Wolf in the Fold uh, and Shore Leave. He played the Black Knight in Shore Leave. And in other films, he doubled for Marlon Brando and Darren McGavin. Uh, his name is Paul Baxley. So he doesn't know. So then I like Kirk moves down the line. And again, this is a great way to establish uh, to establish Chekhov again, short period of time he's been on the Enterprise, or at least that we've seen him. Chekhov, I know you. You started it, didn't you? But Chekhov's got this black eye. It's such a great moment. No, sir, I didn't. Well, who did? I don't know, sir. I love Shatner's repeat. I don't know, sir. I was thinking watching it this time was I was like, this is almost like an I am Spartacus moment. It is. Everyone's backing everybody up. And then Kirk confines everyone to quarters and dismisses them. They all start to leave, including Scotty. Not you, Scotty. <laughs> you were supposed to prevent trouble, Mr. Scott. I got that. Oh, Jimmy is so great in this scene. It's, the scene is so great. And, it's, and of course, because we know what happened and we know what's about to happen. And the way it happens is fantastic. Who threw the first punch, Scotty? <laughs> and then there's a, a pause. Uh. And Kirk is looking at Scotty and suddenly realizes, Scotty, I did, Captain. You did, Mr. Scott? What caused it, Scotty? They insulted us, sir. Must have been some insult. (laughs) (laughs) You threw the first punch. Aye. Chekhov wanted to, but I held him back. You (laughs) helped. Why did Chekhov want to start a fight? Um. Everything about this scene, you know, uh, is so great. So I'm just reading all the lines, but... Uh, the Klingons say, is this off the record? No, this is not off the record. And then he tells Kirk what they said. Klingons call you a tin-plated, overbearing, swaggering dictator with delusions of godhood. Which I'm like, man, Scotty has a good memory. <laughs> is that all? No, sir. They also compared you with that Danabian slime devil. I see. And then they said that you were... I a- get the picture, Scotty. Well, and what I love about the setup is that Kirk, in his mind, is going, oh, Scotty, they insulted your captain and you threw the punch to defend me. That's so great. (laughs) You're my guy. And after they said all this, that's when you hit the Klingons. No. No, No, sir. No. No, uh, I didn't. You told us to avoid trouble. (laughs) That's what's so good about the setup. And I didn't see that it was worth fighting about he doesn't think that he's insulting his captain but he kind of just insulted kirk what was it they said that started the fight scotty is just incensed they call the enterprise a garbage skull and then a beat he goes sir <laughs> kirk is still processing you hit the klingons because they insulted the enterprise not because they I haven't looked at your script, David, but I can see the three little dots after they, yeah, 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 which is a signal to the actor that it is an unfinished thought, that they, they are thinking a thing but not saying a thing. And yeah. you could see that not because they insulted me. I'm looking at the script right now, and that is correct. Kirk actually says, you hit the Klingon because he insulted the Enterprise, not because he dot, 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 question mark. <laughs> yep. There's, there's two sort of signals you can give to actors. One is a dot, 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 and that's an unfinished thought. And generally, if you put two dashes, that means somebody interrupted them. 
I almost took this scene out when the, the script was running too long and, and Gene Alcun said, put it back in. It's the best scene in the script. It's the funniest <laughs> scene in the script. Put it back in. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't want to cut it, but, you know, I was like, so I, I, I don't remember what else I cut. But anyway, um, it is a perfect uh, 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 scene for a Shatner and, and doing. It is absolutely one of the best scenes from the entire series because yeah, it's, it's great. It, it, it reveals aspects of their characters that we don't have a chance to see anywhere else. Um, and, and it ends with a perfect, perfect button, which is... Scotty, you're restricted to quarters until further notice. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. That'll give me a chance to catch up on my technical journals. Scotty's actually looking at it as like a a, a gift. Yeah, like go to your room. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. I've got a I've got a game boy. I've got a Game Boy and a the Xbox and a yeah. PlayStation. And a, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'll go to my room. Well, it, it's good to mention many times how uh, the line fascinating in Corbinite Maneuver. That is how Spock locked down this character. I think this scene is Scotty's lockdown. Yeah. Absolutely. This is the one. I agree. The camera pulls back in sickbay, and there are more tribbles. There's something disquieting about these creatures. Oh, look, McCoy is just going in for the kill. It's just, oh, don't tell me you've got a feeling. Don't be insulting, doctor. <laughs> Which is just yeah. like, this is just how they talk to each other. This, <laughs> yeah. this, this was a scene that Gene Alcoon wrote. Uh, I forget what we took out, and he had to pad, and he, we needed a scene in there to, I don't remember what was... Uh, uh, but Gino Kuhn added this scene. Um, it's not a bad scene. It's just I felt they were a little too hostile to each other. But that's just me. I do love the Ermin violin line. I think that yeah. is a fantastic line. But, it is but this, a great line. But I, I, I don't I, know that you know, scene's yeah, necessary. I think the line I don't like is I like them better than I like you, Mr. Spock. I don't like that line at all. That Yeah, it's a really harsh one. It's That's a little overdone. But Spock is describing the Tribbles saying they have no purpose. And he actually quotes the Bible. Lilies of the field, yes. Yeah, they toil not, neither do they spend. They do indeed have one redeeming characteristic. What's that? They do not talk too much. (laughs) We're on the bridge. As Kirk is making his way to the captain's chair, this is another stroke of brilliance on, on Shatner's part. He's he's still running through the conversation he had with Scotty in his head because <laughs> you could see he like makes a motion like like he's like punching the air like, wow, Scotty punched the Klingon because he ins- like he, he can't let it go. So he's so distracted that he doesn't he's not looking at his chair when he sits down. I mean, why would he? He sat in the chair a million times then like sitting on a whoopee cushion. Shatner is so great, his reaction, like he's like snapped back into reality. And you don't see what he sat on. You heard it, but you didn't see it. It's hidden behind the arm of the chair. And then Kirk picks up the Tribble, sits down, and he's looking around the bridge, and he realizes that the bridge is filled with Tribbles. Which, by the way, I think they would have been much more alarmed much earlier. Like, this is insane, the number of Tribbles that are on the bridge. The helm is covered with Tribbles. Chekhov is playing with Tribbles. And in comes McCoy. Well, don't look at me. It's the Tribbles who are breeding. And if we don't get them off the ship, we're going to be hip deep in them. David, were you on the set when this episode, when this uh, uh, scene was being filmed? Um, I think so, yeah. Well, because one of the things I, I that always uh, I always noticed... Uh, certainly more that we've been doing these uh, these deep dives in the original series. So obviously Sulu, uh, you know, George Decay was off filming the Green Berets. 
So the actor in the helmsman position is uh, Billy Blackburn. And, uh, you know, Billy Blackburn was an extra. I mean, he was in more episodes than like, you know, Sulu and Chekhov uh, put together. But so so there's all this all these distractions going on on the bridge because it's filled with tribbles. But Lieutenant Hadley, uh, that was the name of the character played by Billy Blackburn at the helm. He's sitting there like doing his job, not affected by the tribbles at all. And I just thought, always thought it was interesting that that nothing phased this guy. <laughs> well, you know, what if you, if if you really don't want to call attention to yourself, you do your job and keep your head down. Yeah. That's what he's doing. He's doing his job and he's keeping his head down. <laughs> Captain, I'm forced to agree with the doctor. I've been running computations on their rate of reproduction. The figures are taking an alarming direction. They're consuming our supplies and returning nothing. And then we have a little beat where Uhura says, Oh, but they do give us something, Mr. Spock. They give us love. Well, now, let me interrupt for a second. If any of these people had thought about the consequences of taking any critter aboard the ship without under without scanning it for all of its whatever, you know, this is in a sense, this is the idiot plot because if anybody had done something smart at the beginning, the Tribbles would never have been brought aboard the Enterprise. But otherwise, you know, I needed to get them aboard the Enterprise to run the gag. Yep. So, yeah. Well, we, I mean, this has come up over and over again in the show with Scott and I talking about it is sometimes there are things where it's like, well, you needed that to get to here. Yes. Captain Kirk, I'm mystified at your tone of voice. I've done nothing to warrant such severe treatment. Oh, really? Surely you must have realized what would happen if you removed the tribbles from their predator-filled environment into an environment where their natural multiplicative proclivities would have no restraining factors. And I like I like Stanley Adams. Uh, <laughs> yeah. His response, he's like, ah, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By that you mean, do they breed quickly? <laughs> of course, that's how I maintain my stock. I don't know how Cyrano Jones survived this, frankly. I mean, if he was flying around with the Tribble and free- feeding them, how does he, how did his ship not get over? Doesn't feed him a lot. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't feed yeah. them. You know, he you puts him in the freezer. I don't know. Captain Kirk, I consider your security measures a disgrace. In my opinion, you have taken this entire very important project far too lightly. Once again. We get another sick burn. <laughs> another singer from Kirk to Barris. On the contrary, sir. I think of this project as very important. It is you I take lately. <laughs> oh, man. He's being horrible to this guy. <laughs> he deserves it. I am going to report fully to the proper authorities that you have given free and complete access to this station to a man who is quite probably a Klingon agent. And of course, we know, having watched the show a million times, there is a Klingon agent. But it's certainly not Cyrano Jones, which is who Barris suspects. Here's here's what a, a, a script writing thing is. Uh, obviously, where you would go with this is uh, a lesser script writer would have uh, put in a scene where they do all the research on Cyrano Jones and then right. report back. But the thing is, is that's an unnecessary scene. It shows and it makes Kirk and Spock look stupid. Whereas if Kirk says Spock tell him and Spock says, well, we've done our research and here's what we already know. It makes Kirk and Spock look like they have been like they're fairly intelligent and have a pretty good handle on things. Well, and it makes it look like while he's treating Barris like he doesn't respect him, he act they actually are doing their job. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You can't deny he's disrupted this station. People have disrupted stations before without being Klingon agents. Sometimes all they need is a title, Mr. Barris. 
<laughs> and I like, I'm curious if this was actually in the script that, that Kirk says his last line and exits with a, I have a ship to tend to, or a bar. Was that in the script or is that a Shatner? No, no that was Shatner. Um, That's what I thought. Yeah, he, he's imitating Cyrano Jones' exit. And I looked mm. at that as a, that's not in the script. Oh, God, that's brilliant. That works very nice. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> Have it's, a ship to tend to. Blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. Um, we're back in the rec room, and now there are tribbles everywhere. And all the all the Enterprise crew members look miserable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he goes to the food replicator or whatever it's called at this point in Star Trek uh, and pulls out his tray that is covered with tribbles, including tribbles in the cup. And, and he says, he, he just, great line that's been quoted many times. I don't know why it's been quoted many times, but I guess it is a, a classic line. My chicken sandwich and coffee. <laughs> and repeats it. This is my chicken sandwich and coffee. Fascinating. I want these things off the ship. I don't care if it takes every man we've got. I want them off the ship. And in comes Scotty with a huge armful of dribbles. Hey, they're into the machinery, all right. And they're probably in all the other food processors, too. Now, notice that when Jimmy, when Scotty walks in, I keep calling him Jimmy or Scotty, when Scotty walks in and he's carrying all the tribbles. So uh, we've talked before about how uh, James Dewan lost his uh, his middle finger fighting in World War II and D-Day. Uh, and on all the shots, they always he always made a point to to hide his right hand so you don't see that he's missing his finger. But when he walks into the rec room and he's holding all the tribbles, and he's, he, you, you could see his right hand and you could see his missing finger. Oh, interesting. I hadn't noticed that. And then we make the connection. Oh, probably through one of the air vents. Captain, there are vents of that type on the space station and in the storage compartments. We get to the transporter room, which is also full of tribbles. And uh, Kirk and Spock get to the top of the transporter platform. And Kirk picks up one of the tribbles. And <laughs> and the way he's just, uh, he has resigned himself to the situation. Yep. And he just takes the tribble and he just goes, energize. <laughs> and we get to these storage rooms. He asks the guard there if it's secure. Yep. Nothing could get in. Try to open the door on the bottom. Doesn't work. And Kirk, by the way, is still holding on to the yep. triple that he picked up on the transport platform from the Enterprise. Now, was it your idea that he would try to open the door on the bottom and then open the door on the top? Yeah, I think so. I, if it's in the script, it was my idea. It's That's just brilliant. So because Kirk struggles with opening this lock and then the door opens. And this is one of the most iconic moments in Star Trek history. The waterfall of tribbles falls down on him. This was day four of filming The Trouble with Tribbles. And absolutely, the, the great scene of the Tribbles falling on Shatner, which apparently, David, you can confirm this, it took eight takes to get it right for the Tribbles to fall just right on Shatner. Is that right? Yeah, that's why he looks so annoyed because he's <laughs> been doing that for like a couple hours and because the tribbles had to be picked up and put back yeah. up uh, top each time, oh, <laughs> took boy. time. And Shatner was, you know, Shatner likes to get everything in two or three takes and be done with it. And he was get it's like Oliver Hardy uh, uh, <laughs> uh, would always have his shots, his close ups at the end of the day because he was impatient to get to the golf course. And so the impatience you would see 
um, uh, in the uh, uh, close-ups of Oliver Hardy is genuine impatience. He wants to get out and go golfing. Well, Shatner was definitely impatient at having to do eight takes. Anytime someone has a script where like things have to fall or drop or land in a certain way, better expect a lot of takes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But Bill's, like I said, Bill's a workaholic. He was not going to leave until they got it right. And that is the end of Act Three. We're back in Act Four, looking at a big pile of tribbles. I I just love it. You know, they see the mountain of tribbles, and then the the mountain starts to move, and then slowly but surely, you see Captain Kirk peeking his head through the tribbles, and then he makes his way through, and he's just standing there, surrounded by tribbles, and he picks one of them up, and he just like looks at it, like. He gives it a look like it's like, if I never see any one of these things again, it'll be too soon for me. And this is what the key, one of the keys, I think, to the comedy is like, of course, probably there's no reason he wouldn't walk his way out of this huge pile of tribbles. But Captain Kirk standing in the pile of tribbles while tribbles repeatedly hit him in the head is so funny. And I also think about that's like a dude up in the storage compartment whose job it is to occasionally drop tribbles on Shatner's head. Irv Feinberg, the prop man. <laughs> he was deliberately aiming. He was deliberately aiming for Bill. <laughs> now, I have a question, David. I was reading in Mark Cushman's book, uh, These Are the Voyages. In his book, he says that because Roddenberry had been away for a couple weeks, that when he came back to the Star Trek set, uh, this was the scene that he walked back into. Yeah, that, I have heard that. So so that that he came back in his serious science fiction show, he walks back on and he sees everyone's having a good time. He sees, you know, Captain Kirk buried under a mountain of tribbles and that this led to the falling out that Gene Rodberry had with Gene L. Coon. What what do you what do you know about that? I wasn't there for that. I had to leave early, so I missed that. Uh, and I'm glad I wasn't there when Roddenberry showed up. Uh, the funny thing is, when I did meet Roddenberry, by then he had cooled off enough. He says, oh, yes, I uh, the Tribbles, good script. <laughs> like, so by then he'd had a chance to cool off. But yes, that was the beginning of the falling out. There's no question in my mind that the trouble with Tribbles was the reason Gino Kuhn got fired. Wow. Because uh, when he went, Gino Kuhn, Supposedly, he left for health reasons, but he immediately showed up running to uh, a show called It Takes a Thief. And when my agent contacted him and said, David would like to work with you again, he said, I've had enough of David Gerald. Later on, Gino Kuhn and I, you know, I mean, I think he was just annoyed at the moment. But later on, Gino Kuhn and I, uh, you know, I interviewed him for my book. So uh, we, we had a good time. But he loved Star Trek and being fired off Star Trek was a major issue for him, a major blow. It was a major and, blow for Star Trek. Yeah, uh, It was a mistake on Roddenberry's part. It was a big, big, big mistake because Gino Kuhn understood something that Roddenberry didn't. He understood the characters. And that essentially the characters were the reason the audience came back. I mean, you would sit through Spock's brain because it's still Star Trek, even though the character and because of the characters, not because of the story. Um, But Roddenberry didn't want the show turning into Lost in Space with talking carrots, you know, so and I don't blame him. You know, you could just see Roddenberry going, oh, the pain, the pain. It's like, um, you know, he wanted his show to be taken serious. But, you know, sometimes you get handed um, 
a bouquet of flowers. And even if you wanted roses and they give you chrysanthemums, shut up and take the flowers. And Roddenberry had a hit on his hands and didn't realize what a hit he had. He should have left Gino Kuhn alone. So we find out several things. One is that all of these tribbles are gorged. And Barris comes in furious. Kirk, I am going to hold you responsible. There must be thousands of them. Hundreds of thousands. And then Spock, of course, has to give an exact number. Um, 1,771,561. But see, this is an easy dialogue for Spock. It's This is a triple. Uh, it Literally, it is a, a comedy a thing called a trip, a tribble. Triple. It is a <laughs> sorry about that. It's a comedy thing called a triple. Beat, beat, gag. Yep. And and uh, uh, the triple is a uh, it's an easy way to do a joke. And uh, uh, you can find a lot of analysis of how to do a triple. Well, this was the e- it's an easy and obvious one, but it's a great it's a great one. It's like God, there must be thousands of them, you know, hundreds of thousands. You know. And of course, you Spock delivers the Spock line, and that comes from. Uh, uh, that episode, Cat's Paw. Oh, I wonder how long we've been here. 17 minutes and 43 seconds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, and this triple, this triple happens to be a triple with triples, which is a really unique kind of triple. Yeah, it is. I am going to hold you responsible, Mr. Barris. I'll hold you in irons if you don't shut up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At which point, Bones comes in with the solution. Jim, I think I've got it. All we have to do is quit feeding him. But feeding them, they stop breeding. Now he tells me. Now this line of dialogue came from DeForest Kelly, who I was sitting on the set about a week or two earlier, and I had been I was going through the script cutting, as cutting my eighty page version down to sixty pages. And uh, D comes up and says, I have an idea for you. I forget exactly what he said. And he says, uh, I tell uh, Kirk what, and 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 Kirk says, now he tells me. I say, oh, that's, that's a good line. I, I don't know where it fits, but thank you. And uh, and sure enough, it worked its way. And it's like, oh, yeah, I know I can use that line right here. And yeah. so uh, <laughs> so that line actually was suggested by D. Kelly. And I'm really glad I was able to use it. It's a great line. And it's pretty, and it, it's where you put it, David, is, is perfect. the perfect place to put it. Yeah. Um, and the next thing we find out is that a bunch of these tribbles are dead. <gasps> um, oh, God, no. Bones, I want the tribbles, the grain, everything analyzed. I want to know what killed these tribbles. I haven't figured out what keeps him alive yet. And at this point, Kirk, who's had the upper hand on Barris throughout this whole thing, now it seems like Barris has the upper hand on Kirk. Kirk, yeah. This project is ruined, and Starfleet is going to hear about it. And when they do, they will have a board of inquiry, and they will roast you alive. And I am going to be there, Kirk, to enjoy every minute of it. And while Barris is saying this, Kirk is like looking around he's realizing the severity of the situation because he suddenly looks, he looks serious. Yes, until that board of inquiry, I'm still a captain. And as captain, I want two things done. First, find Cyrano Jones. And second... Nice long beat. Close that door. That's funny. It's real funny. Uh, we're back up in Lori's office. Captain Kirk! What do you want? An official apology addressed to the Klingon High Command. As much as I love seeing William Campbell in this episode playing a different character, uh, I wish we could have seen more of him because I just think he is just, uh, first of all, he's a lovely person. I met him at the conventions over the years. Really, really nice guy. Uh, and and just, you know, uh, I just loved his work in The Squire of Gothos. That, so people love that episode because of him. Oh, yeah. 
nobody nobody else could have made that work as because he could just be the right kind of juicy and oily. He was the best Captain Koloth we could have had. I'm so glad John Kolokos wasn't available. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> yeah. against John Kolokos. I'm sure he would have done a fine job, but but it really you know really came to life with Bill Campbell. Now, if you wish to avoid a diplomatic incident, no, Kirk, you can't let him. That will give them the wedge they need to claim Sherman's planet. And this is why I think, well, and I'll ask you, David, I've always believed that Korax was under orders to start that fight in the bar. I never thought about it, but yeah, given the context of everything, yes, it makes sense that the Klingons were there to cause trouble and create a disruption. Because Korax wanted Scotty, he wanted the Federation to throw the first punch, and that way they could demand an apology. I'd like to know just what happened. Who put the tribbles in the Quadro Triticale? What was in the grain that killed them? And the Klingons are unhappy because of the Tribbles. Can you get those things out of here? And Kirk is taking the Tribbles away, and there is Darvin, the assistant. Now, we have set this up so nicely with the scene, the bar scene, where Cyrano offers the Tribble to Michael Pataki playing Korak. So we've set this up, but there's a, it's so it's foreshadowed. But it's a total, um, how is Kirk going to get out of this terrible situation right. that he's in? Oh, my God, I don't see a solution here. And bam, there's the, it's really a great surprise twist that in retrospect, you see it was set up. But in terms of if you're watching it for the first time, you have no idea how Kirk is going to survive this. I can't understand it. The last time I saw one act this way was, was at the bar. What was in the bar? Klingons. And Kirk goes over to the Klingons, and of course, the Tribbles freak out. Why, well, you're right, Mr. Jones. They don't like Klingons. And what I love, by the way, about this, and this is something we've talked about throughout uh, this podcast, is what an incredible observer Kirk is and how fast his mind is. I think Kirk has already figured it out. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. As soon as the, as soon as the yeah. triple starts reacting violently uh, to Arndt Darwin, Kirk immediately says, "Well, hold on a moment." Yeah, like he's very observant. He's putting the pieces together. There is something wrong here. He's putting the pieces together, and you can see his mind working as he figures it out. Yeah. Well, and this is one of the fun things we talked about. You know, obviously Star Trek is good at comedy, as we're seeing in this episode. But this scene is also the end of the Agatha Christie murder m- mystery, yeah. where where the detective is putting together what finding the bad guy. And he yeah, says, one of you in this room is a murderer and nobody leaves until I figure out who. <laughs> yeah. But they do like Vulcans. Well, Mr. Spock, I didn't know you had it in you. Obviously, Tribbles are very perceptive creatures, Captain. Obviously. And they, he goes to Barris. Mr. Barris, they like you. Well, there's no accounting for taste. Yeah. <laughs> and then back to Darwin, and again, they freak out. They don't like you, Mr. Darwin. I wonder why. And the McCoy checks him out, and McCoy's reading his readings, and he finally says, Heartbeat is all wrong. His body temperature is... Jim, this man is a Klingon. Uhura started this whole thing, and McCoy saves the day. Yeah. Well, and the great thing about the setup is that it also saves Kirk, because Barris was had the advantage over Kirk and was going to bring him up to this board of inquiry. I've, now we discovered that the actual Klingon is Barris's assistant. No. He's not going to, yeah. Yeah, not gonna be able to make that argument. We yeah uh, yeah we missed a beat here. Uh, there was no time for it, but um, Kirk needed to really tell Barris uh, as far as a board of inquiry goes, Mister Barris. Say yeah. <laughs> and but we there was no time left in the square. I mean, we were running out of time, but we really needed that line of dialogue, and and it it escaped us. 
And we also hear that the grain was in fact poisoned and McCoy goes into an explanation of what exactly it did. The more the organism eats, the more inert matter is built up. So after two or three days, it would reach a point to where they couldn't take in enough nourishment to survive. They starved to death in a storage compartment full of grain. They starved to death. And now basically what we get next is triple torture because he keeps bringing the tribbles to Darwin to make him talk. All right, I poisoned the grain, take them away. And the tribbles had nothing to do with it. I like that Kirk wants to needs to clear the name of the tribbles. I don't know, I never saw one before in my life and I hope I never see one of those fuzzy, miserable things again. And I love too, because he's also now nailed, he doesn't have to give that apology to Captain Koloth. You have six hours to get your ship out of Federation territory. We're back at the bar, which is, this is a high level of silliness that <laughs> the bar, bar is covered with tribbles. The bartender is covered in tribbles and he's just sitting there with a tribble on top of his head. That's very silly, huh. um, but funny. And we have our last moment with Cyrano Jones where they are going to arrest him for, for transporting uh, dangerous animals. Captain, one little tribble isn't harmful. And Kirk, who likes to uh, come up with his own sentences says that either we can arrest you for 20 years or you can clean up every single triple on the space station. <laughs> Cyrano goes, that'll take years. 17.9 to be exact. There's some things where it's like, Spock, there's, how could, there's no way to, be, you could ever figure that out, but that's okay. <laughs> and again, this is something that Shatner and Nimoy play so well. All right, all right. You'll do it. You'll do it. I'll do it. That's just great. Yeah, there's, uh, let's see, uh, 18 years from 1967 was uh, 1985. And there were fans who actually, on CompuServe and the, the science fiction forum was, Cyrano Jones is free! He's free wow. at last! He's done! <laughs> that is <laughs> hilarious. A celebration at Cyrano Jones Liberation Day. <laughs> uh, that's Too bad Stanley look. Adams didn't live to see it. Yeah, he would have would have enjoyed that. We're back on the bridge for one of my favorite endings of a Star Trek episode. Uh, you like this one, Steve, right? I do. Totally. Okay. 100%. I do too. I love it. So fun. Kirk goes to his big chair, starts to sit, and then stops himself because of what happened last time. No tribbles. No tribbles anywhere on the bridge. I don't see any tribbles around here. And you won't find a tribble on this entire ship. Bones! How would you do that? He passes the buck to Scotty. Well, I cannot take credit for another man's work. Scotty did it. Scotty, where are the tribbles? I love the way they all pass the buck. Oh, uh, Captain, it was really Mr. Spock's recommendation. <laughs> Kirk turns to Spock. Nimoy is really, I, I because one of the things we've talked a lot about is Spock is funny. Spock, and Spock knows funny. that he's funny and he is playing this for humor. Based on computer analysis, of course, taking into account the possibilities of. And when I don't want to interrupt this. Mutual admiration society, but I'd like to know where the tribbles are. And this is where you see them all exchange glances. Yeah. You do it. This is a visual triple. Exactly. And this is what this is Joe Pevney and the editor clearly understood what they were doing. Well, it was Mr. Scott who performed the actual engineering. And you could see Kirk's frustration growing and growing through this whole thing. Mr. Scott, where are the tribbles? I use the transporter, Captain. You use the transporter? Aye. Well, where did you transport them? And then this is a beautiful bit of directing and editing. Scotty looks at McCoy, which McCoy. causes Kirk to look to, uh, to McCoy, and McCoy looks up. 
And the reason that he's looking up is sort of the, I don't want to tell you. But that look up makes Kirk think that they transported the Tribbles into deep space. Yeah. Scott, you didn't transport them into space, did you? Captain Kirk, that'd be inhuman. Well, where are they? I'll give them a very good home, sir. And Kirk just screams out, where? <laughs> I gave them to the Klingons, sir. Gave them to the Klingons? Aye, sir. Before they went into warp, I transported the whole kit and caboodle into the air engine room, where there'll be no triple at all. Oh, and then <laughs> this, the slow build to the laughs. <laughs> this is like uh, the ending of uh, of a Naked Gun episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, as, uh, Jimmy Dewan tried to claim that he ad-libbed that last line, but he didn't. It was in the script. I think the where there'll be no triple at all it came from Gene Alcoon. I want I was not bold enough to go for that, but I think that came from Gene Alcoon. So it sounds that way. It sounds like his kind of line. Yeah. Uh it's really, really funny. Am I the only person who actually feels bad for the tribbles? Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I do. I no. But this is a shaggy dog story. Really. It's yeah. an idiot plot. It's a shaggy dog story. And the purpose of it is to have you laugh. And it works because the minute you start thinking about it logically, it starts to break down. Well, that the Klingons uh, are are inundated with these tribbles. You know, the Klingons are not going to be nice to those tribbles. No. 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 So that's uh, I, I agree with you, Steve. It took me a, a few years for me to, you know, really think about it that yeah, way. People but... asked, what did the tri- Klingons do with the tribbles? I said, I don't know. I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that brings us to the end. Of the trouble with tribbles. Yeah. And this right. is what people had to say about the trouble with tribbles. Director Joseph Pepney said, I fell in love with that show. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with Leonard and Shatner to make them think in terms of typical farce comedy. The show was successful and I was happy about that. Dorothy Fontana said, Whenever I was asked which Star Trek episodes are my favorites, I always reply, the city on the edge of forever and the trouble with tribbles. Both yes. stories both stories are unique in that they show sides of Captain James T. Kirk that were seldom displayed on the show. The sense of humor and fine appreciation for the ridiculousness in tribbles and the genuine growth and love and poignant loss of city. Charlie yes. Brill, Charlie Brill said, I love what Shatner did in this episode. He plays comedy great. Leonard, of course, was brilliant. And there were laughs on that set. Uh, laughs on that set. A lot of shows are too serious when they're being made, but not that one. We had a lot of fun. James Dewan, I love the scene where Kirk is trying to figure out if Scotty started the fight over the love of his captain. And it turns out the far more important insult involved the ship. How dare they? All in all, David Gerald wrote a great script. And the final oh, word, good. right? That was from James Dewan. And the final word from William Shatner, the trouble with Tribbles was so much fun that the trouble we had with Tribbles was keeping a straight face. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I never heard any of those remarks before. Where did you find them? Those are great. Those are in Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages volume. Oh, how wonderful. Yes. Yeah, I have the books. I just haven't had a chance to, you know, it's like I'm too busy doing my own stuff to read. You know, yeah. I don't do the ego surfing to see what people are saying. So that's really nice to see. That's great. That's really so, nice. So the question we have for you, David, is after doing this deep dive of this episode with us, I mean, we really, you know, went scene by scene, moment by moment. Like, do you have any 
any like revelations, any any new insights into this episode that you wrote 55 years ago? Well, the thing I would say, and I've said it before, but I, I must stress this. I feel blessed to have had the opportunity to work with so many brilliant, legendary, wonderful people. I mean, just starting with Gino Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana, but then getting to the soundstage and here's Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and and this incredible cast, Nichelle Nichols, who is, I, I just love her so much, Jimmy Dewan, D. Kelly, Walter, um, uh, I hope I didn't leave anybody out. Uh, they're just, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're just uh, an incredible cast. I, the, every single one of them was perfect in the parts they were playing, and uh, but they were good people too, and and worked so hard. I felt blessed. And then when you look behind the scenes, you know, there's Johnny Dwyer decorating the set, and Irv Feinberger with the props, and and Jerry Finnerman, who's just incredible. Uh, to meet Mark Daniels and to work with Joe Pevney, uh, all of the people, um, they, everybody was so kind. And when you look at the cast, even though I didn't get a chance to meet them then, Michael Pataki, uh, Charlie Brill, William Schallert, uh, uh, Bill Campbell, uh, when you uh, Whit Bissell, when you think, oh my God, look at the cast. What a great group of character actors. I felt like I had, uh, fallen into a pile of roses that everything yeah. was had turned out so well. I got to work with some of the greatest people in television in the 60s, and I got to have a script that uh, I just wanted to write the very best script for Star Trek. I just wanted to do a good job, and I feel so enormously gratified that so many people put their heart and soul into making that thing work. I'm delighted that even, you know, Bob Justman, who was skeptical of this kid writing Star Trek, even Bob Justman came around and said, yeah, this works. So uh, I think in terms of my personal feeling, um, I am still walking around 55 years later in an absolute daze that I got to be a part of something so wonderful and that it turned out so good that it has become part of um cultural uh legacy it has become an iconic part of american culture there have been references to tribbles on dozens of different tv shows uh, the first time i saw was on la law when arnie asked his secretary she says come over to my house i have star trek on tape he says you have the one with the tribbles <laughs> like that and i was like whoa that was in 1986 and and then you see you know the the uh, bumper sticker on on the comic guy's car and the simpsons i break for tribbles and stuff like that and it shows up uh, in night court go suck a tribble you know one of the cases and this stuff and i'm really like well how is this happening that this one script turned into because my attitude, I had a party to, with my friends to see the night it was on, and a couple of them started raving about it. And I said, no, 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 stop, stop. It's only one episode of one TV show. In 20 years, nobody's going to remember this. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> right? And here it is 55 years later, and uh, this thing is become part of our cultural legacy, part of our cultural heritage. And I'm a little bit gobsmacked because it's, I'm delighted that I had that kind of impact with my writing. I just wish my current work were. <laughs> no, I'm seriously, it's like Star Trek was lightning in a bottle. And you're lucky to be even allowed to come near the bottle for a while. And um, we knew we were doing something good with Star Trek. We didn't know it was going to be this good.
I have always loved The Trouble with Tribbles uh, since I was a little kid, six years old, watching this for the very first time, to being a 53-year-old watching it again with a new set of eyes. It absolutely positively is one of Star Trek's very, very, very best episodes. It's an atypical episode of Star Trek, but it is delightful. It is so great seeing this cast work together, the chemistry the rhythm that everybody has that these that these main cast members with the exception of George Decay who's not here but everybody is just working so well together the chemistry is amazing uh it is it's it's delightful it is a delightful episode the trouble with tribbles is the star trek 4 of the original series episodes everybody loves the trouble with tribbles you don't even have to be a diehard star trek fan to love the trouble with tribbles um and i'm i was just so excited that we got to to really do this conversation with david but what about you steve what are your closing thoughts on the trouble with tribbles so so two things i would not say that this is one of star trek's huge idea shows but actually invasive species is really a thing like a very serious thing and if you look up like the green crabs or the zebra mussels or like you could see places where a whole uh, ecosystem has been ruined by a new species coming in but i don't think that's the most important thing about the trouble with tribbles the most important thing is it's really really fun and something you said david i think is so key which is that you love disrupting the show you love taking it to a new place and the thing that we've talked about over and over again and this is one of the best examples is the flexibility of star trek is that you can have a show that has a super serious episode like balance of terror and also have trouble with tribbles and part of that is that you have incredible characters and you have great actors who have the range to play a really moving serious scene you know, Shatner can play the end of City on the Edge of Forever and be really, really funny. And in particular, one of the things I think you, you did so beautifully is that rhythm with Kirk and Spock, the rhythm of the comedy. And gotta say, this is where Scotty becomes Scotty. And for that, I will always, always love The Trouble with Tribbles. Thank you. Well, we, we cannot thank you enough, David, for joining us for the duration of this conversation. I mean, really... Well, uh, absolutely wonderful uh, conversation. And, and you know, I, I know when we were when we were talking at the Skirball, uh, where where can people follow you on social media and where can people buy your books? OK, you can follow me on Facebook. I have a, uh, I have a Facebook page. I'm not that hard to follow. And I have a Patreon page, uh, www.patreon.com slash David Gerald. And uh, I put a lot of stuff up for free, but you can, you know, if you're a subscriber, you can read all kinds of whatever I'm posting, uh, including a lot of Star Trek stuff. Um, and then I have some books available on Amazon. And if you catch me at a convention, I have books that are uh, I can autograph and scripts. I will sell copies of scripts because pe people love to be able to see things. How did you make this happen? And the script is really the instruction book for everybody who's working on it. And uh, so, yeah, um, there's a lot of different places. I'm not that hard to find. And, and if people also, can, uh, uh, ask questions on Facebook, I'm always there to answer them. And you, they can also uh, go to www.gerald.com, correct? 
Well, they will someday. We had we haven't updated that site in a couple of years, and I have oh. to I have to find somebody I can trust to update it and maintain it. It's just haven't had a chance to. It's a t- it's time consuming to man- manage a website. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> but uh, if you want to keep current, my Patreon page there's a lot of freebie stuff up there, and and then subscribers get to read uh, advanced copies of news stories and and uh, stuff that isn't available anywhere else. Um, so that's what we think of the trouble with tribbles. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on social media, go to our Facebook page, enter incidents on Twitter, enterprise incidents on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, leave a review there. You can also subscribe on Spotify, on YouTube, leave your comments there. And if you want to reach me, it's SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you want to hear us hear my other podcast talk about movies with cute fuzzy creatures you might want to check out our episodes on the muppet movie the black stallion beauty and the beast and most recently pixar's ratatouille scott how would people find you you can follow me on twitter and instagram at movie mance and please be sure to go to apple podcasts to leave a review of enterprise incidents let us know what you think of how we're doing so far uh you know during our journey into the original series our uh we're we're so grateful for the reactions that we've been getting everyone who's been saying that we're making them see the original series in a whole new light we hope you're enjoying listening to enterprise incidents as much as steve and i are recording these conversations again uh please leave the review and please be sure to share enterprise incidents and and share it with fans who don't know about us because there are people who are still discovering us and are binging on the past episodes to catch up so please share enterprise incidents on your social media platforms and Coming up next on Enterprise Incidents, we are going to the planet of the Romans in Bread and Circuses. And for that episode, we are going to be joined for the third time on Enterprise Incidents by Ralph Sinensky, who directed that episode. And he is going to join us for the duration of our deep dive. He joined us for this side of Paradise and Metamorphosis. We're very excited to have him back. So join us for Bread and Circuses next time on Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.